0: me a go-no-go no, go for launch.
1: Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that was not true.
2: I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for
0: launch. Welcome
1: back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is episode 95. Uh, we're so glad you're joining us. We are recording on October 4th. Sunday at 4 o'clock p.m pacific time I'm your host Terry Plucknett joining me as always are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz uh Todd I, I think it just is gonna have to be like a, a recurring thing thoughts on the Seahawks game I mean we did watch one today they did win
0: we're 1-0 and today
1: we're 1-0 and today yeah
0: <laughs> it, did, it didn't have to be pretty but hey we're also 4-0 against the spread somehow even though all four of those wins against the spread were very slim
1: yeah it's it's uh it's been interesting so far that was I I had a feeling that had a potential to be a trap game and it uh it lived up to it for sure
0: well yeah our Seahawks cannot play in the heat every time we played in San Diego or go down to Miami it is a lazy game
1: well it doesn't help that half our defense is out injured too
0: yeah
2: yeah, I was going to say, between yeah. the Seahawks and the Cowboys, I think that's a race to the bottom with maybe the worst defenses in NFL history. Who's, who's going to get there first? I think the more intriguing thing
1: is the race to the bottom of the worst division in NFL history with the NFC East this year. You've got the the Washington football team and the Dallas Cowboys currently leading at 1-3. Um... Uh, Say, Zach, what's in that cup you have? What are you drinking today?
2: I'm drinking uh, what's called cheap wine, the cheapest wine possible. Ben Sanderson would approve. Um, you know what? I feel, I feel kind of like the Cowboys. I'm going to start out making a big deficit for myself, but gradually, as more and more alcohol enters my system, I'm going to sound more and more coherent. And uh, you know what? I may not win the game, but at least I'll cut the deficit.
0: Very
1: nice. Very nice. Todd, what do you got today?
0: Uh, well, since Sarah's drink of choice is tequila, that's what I went with, the El Padrino Reposado. And yeah, it is going to be nice.
1: Yeah, I felt like I I should go with something hard for for uh, leaving Las Vegas today, but I decided not to. I've got I've got my beer. However, I think I think it still works. So I went and had my growler filled at Ridgewalker Brewery, but I did not get a Ridgewalker beer this time. So this is from Left Hand Brewery, which makes it, you know, I like that because I'm a lefty. Uh, it's out of Colorado. This is their White Russian. Um, which, I mean, there's a White Russian in in uh, Leaving Las Vegas. So it's in Is he? Li- whatever. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Well, um, I'm so glad you guys are listening uh, and checking us out. Make sure you check out... All of our other episodes, uh, we've had a few episodes of Daily Notes post over the last couple days, uh, including one featuring uh, our very own Zach Salts talking about Adam's Family Values. I listened to, well, I didn't listen to the Adam's Family Values part, but I listened to the first half where you guys just kind of ranted on and on for a while. And I got to say, <laughs> it fair. was awesome. It was a great conversation.
2: Yeah, I was also intoxicated during that podcast too, but um, that, that that was fun, Yeah yeah todd do you have anything to say about that what was it
0: (laughs) well yeah it was you you were throwing some serious shade uh at our at us during that episode which i i I thought was funny and i thought a little out of place because like adam's just sort of like yeah yeah okay (laughs) you like uh, you like go off about you know how what, what movies we grew up watching and how we, we're we not good enough to understand the brilliance of Adam's Family Values because we watched Jurassic That's, Park as kids.
2: That is not at all what I meant by that. I, I didn't mean it to come off that way. I, I believe that Adam's Family Values is just as stupid or as incoherent as Big, big Top Pee Wee or whatever you watched when you were kids. But like... I just it's 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 so tough because I couldn't I couldn't make that like an assignment for you to watch after trivia because obviously you wouldn't like it you have to grow up and have that unique bond with it but uh, I didn't mean to throw too much shade really what I was throwing shade at was you know Terry giving me shit for changing my star ranking of Crash to zero stars I hate that stupid movie but uh, yeah I I, I I do hear yeah. what you're saying though Todd that's fair.
0: Just a little bit of narcissism in there that you're worried about cancel culture by your star rating of Crash.
2: <laughs> hey, you know what? I'm a hashtag influencer. Okay, I got followers out there; they know what's going on.
1: I will say, I was uh, I I was impressed that I think uh, Adam's Family Values is a much better title for Adam's podcast than uh, Daily Notes as well. Yeah, except <laughs> it's a... got
2: it's got the two D's in there though. That's the problem. Adam's true, Adam's true. maybe it's like you know a Russ Meyer podcast about Adam's family. No, no, never mind. We won't go there. <laughs>
1: uh, well, anyways, you can check out that conversation. Also, uh, another conversation that Adam has with uh, Cody Leach from uh, from YouTube and uh, and uh, things like that as well that just got posted there too. And uh, again, it's all part of almost sideways. So if you subscribe to this, you'll get the daily notes as well. Uh, So check all of that out. Okay, Uh, let's see here. Uh, Todd, what have you been watching?
0: Uh, So the second best Nicolas Cage movie I watched this week was from 2017, uh, directed by Jonathan Baker, and it's called Inconceivable. And it's about this girl named Katie, played by Nikki Whalen. And uh, she's a single mother, and she meets these uh, uh, two parents, Angela and Brian, played by Gina Gershon and Nicolas Cage. And they have a daughter around the same age as she does, and so they hire her as a nanny and have her live in the guest house. But Katie's got this like really uh, mysterious dark past, and the the details of which sort of slowly get revealed and ruin the lives of basically everyone involved in the movie. Uh, it's a really weird movie. the The eventual twists and stuff are are simultaneously like outrageous and predictable, which. It, I, it's kind of weird to think about. Uh, it sort of reminded me of the ABC show Revenge, because it's like a violent soap opera, kind of, but it looks really good, and it's really, like, sexy. It's also sort of reminded me of, like, A Simple Favor, or, like, a steamy 90s thriller, like A Perfect Murder, or something like that. The women in the movie are crazy, though, and Nicolas Cage is the one who's, like, sitting there trying to put up with them and uh, maintaining his cool. I don't even think he raises his voice in the movie, but... Uh, Faye Dunaway's in there too, randomly, and like this WWE star is like the fifth build. It's kind of it's kind of a weird, a movie. Nicolas Cage is totally out of place, but supposedly only signed on to the movie just to, like, support the women because they couldn't get a star in in the lead role, so they needed a name to attach to the movie, and it was Nicolas Cage, even though he's like the fourth main character. The movie is trashy, but sometimes you need some good trash. Uh, you can just sit back and turn off your critic brain and just like enjoy something campy. Uh, it's like a two and a half star movie, sort of like a cross between Snake Eyes and The Family Man.
2: <laughs> yes, that's what we've all been hoping for: Snake Eyes meets The Family Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's beautiful.
1: Todd, I have to ask you too: how how excited are you for next month, jitsu coming to Amazon Prime? Oh, I'm all the over new Nicholas Cage movie. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I, I was. I, I I've been keeping track of like all the ones that he has in development, so that I could actually review a new Nicholas Cage movie at, one, at some point. <laughs> or we can as a group.
1: <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Adam posted that on Twitter this week, and I was like, "Wait, that that's that's for like it." The poster even looks like like fan art photoshopped. I'm like no, no, this is a real a real thing. Okay, oh, the wow. thing I didn't know I needed in my life.
2: Wow, and of course, Frank Grillo's in it. That's perfect. Yeah, Frank
1: Grillo's in it, <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs>
2: Definitely on brand. Oh, so, yeah. So, Todd, oh, yeah. Todd, do you notice, like, a discernible difference in the quality of movies that, like, Nickla- where Nicolas Cage is first build, or, like, versus the movies where Nicolas Cage is an and Nicolas Cage, like, third or fourth build?
0: Well, in in the, uh, I don't know, I guess in the movies we've made in the last five years, all, like, 35 of them, I, I guess... Yeah, the, the ones who he's in the lead role definitely have a, a distinct style to him, but, like, all the other ones, I feel like he just... I don't, I don't even know if they're just, like, interesting scripts or he just got paid enough money to appear in the movie, but they're not... Yeah, they're definitely not as good. Like, Inconceivable is, is interesting, and it's fun to watch, but, I mean, it's not necessarily because of Cage. I I, actually, I just kind of genuinely like those, like, steamy thrillers.
2: That's all that's, right. that's interesting. He's also in something called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is about him... Agreeing to have an appearance at a billionaire superfan's party, and then gets cast in a Tarantino movie. That that feels like that's made up. He's trolling us, right?
0: I remember when that was first announced. I was like, I, I mean, I okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's
1: like a, what, what, what are we? To- I, all right, I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an
0: easy sell with Cage. <laughs>
1: oh that's awesome that is awesome okay uh let's see here i'll go next uh for what i've been watching this week um so my anniversary watch is from 20 years ago it was nominated for one oscar that was best documentary i think i'm the only one that's seen any of the documentaries from 2000 i'm pretty sure that's how it is uh anyways this movie's called long night's journey into day uh it is directed by deborah hoffman and francis reed and it is looking at um, the uh, the end of apartheid in south africa and really examining the truth and reconciliation commission that they put together to kind of um, heal their country after apartheid ended where uh, people who committed political crimes could uh, apply to the commission for amnesty and they would uh, they would go and confess their crimes and if they could show that they were truly remorseful for them and they were 100% politically motivated, then they would be um, given amnesty and they wouldn't be charged for their crimes. And it follows four different stories uh, kind of working through that process. Uh, you have one where uh, a group of, of, uh, of black men uh, killed a white woman um, and it turned out that white woman was, a, an American student that was, uh, living in South Africa. Uh, that was an interesting story. Uh, you also had, um, you had several stories of, uh, or no, the next one was, uh, a group of cops that killed, um, a group of men in a basic traffic violation because they were, uh, kind of leaders of an uprising in one of the, in one of the townships. Um, you had a story of, uh a black man that was in one of the like violent uh, militia groups that blew up a cafe. And then you had another story of a group of men who, uh, who killed like seven people in one township. Uh, It's, it's a really fascinating story. Um, I think it could have been told a little better and a little clearer. Um, And uh, I think it was, if it might've even been too much still in the middle of what was going on to really get a good picture of what these stories really meant, um, because it really kind of felt like an, like like on the ground, like it almost felt like an extended like, twenty twenty feature of here's what's going on with these different court cases, um, so because of that I'm giving it two and a half stars, but it doesn't mean that it's not an important story to tell, and uh, what I really took from it is, looking at what South Africa did by establishing this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, coming out of something like apartheid. Uh, has really helped make that country into something for the better, uh, and it's something that I would say us as Americans have really kind of avoided in doing that of, you know, let's let's not, you know, avoid the elephant in the room, let's shoot the elephant in the room, and let's actually talk about what these problems are. I mean, it literally says in the Constitution of the United States that we're just going to avoid talking about slavery for 20 years, uh, and then we'll, the, the, we can you know, let future us worry about that topic. Um, that's not what South Africa did. South Africa went after it when they decided, you know, this is over. Now we've got to heal our country. And they actually worked to do it. And this movie is a great picture into some of what they did to do that. So for that alone, it's worth a watch. Uh, I wish the storytelling was a little bit, little cleaner, a little crisper. Um, so that's why it's got two and a half stars. But um, definitely an important story to know.
2: Yeah, so, so believe it or not, Terry, I don't know if I've seen that documentary, but I've heard about it. And there's a really interesting book out there called The Human Being Died That Night that I read that was all about the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that might have been referenced in the documentary. I'm not sure, but it was about uh, Eugene uh, de who was that uh, pretty horrible uh, police colonel that testified before the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Committee about the egregious, cli- uh, egregious crimes that he had committed. Under apartheid, and um, I don't know. It sounds really fascinating. It's it's obviously a topic that's been in the news lately, and exactly the way you're talking about that maybe we need to um, kind of model that sort of um, you know system when talking about the effects of slavery in this country. But um, yeah, that sounds like a really interesting documentary.
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there's a reason that co- the topic never goes away here, and and in in twenty years, it feels like South Africa has made more progress in that. In that area, than we have in one hundred and fifty. So, uh, I think it, it's worth at least looking at. Um, I found it on Canopy. So, if you've got Canopy, it's pretty easy to find. Um, and it's it's like maybe an hour and a half, so it's a fairly fairly quick watch too. So, um, so worth checking out uh, for sure. All right. Zach, what did you watch?
2: So I also went abroad this week. Um, I went to uh, the great nation of Hungary, which actually has a lot of great movies. Uh, especially, you know, B- Bela Tar has really kind of revolutionized um, the international recognition of hun- hung- Hungarian cinema. But I went back to 1975. TCM has been doing a great feature celebrating international women filmmakers, and so on the TCM app, I watched a movie called Adoption, a Hungarian movie from 1975 directed by Marta Mazeros. And it is about a 43 year old woman named Kata who lives in the village and she works at a factory but she's very self-sufficient. She's having an affair with this guy who has a wife and kids. Um, They're basically buddies, but they don't, you know, she wants to commit to more of a long-term thing. He's not interested. She wants to have his child. He's not interested. And then along the way she meets this kind of runaway orphan from the orphanage uh, named Anna and she wants to uh, use this woman's house as a place for her to have sex with her boyfriend without getting caught by the orphanage. Um, and so these kind of parallel plots run against each other. You got the one plot with the, the married man who she's having an affair with, and then you got this kind of kid who's using her place as a, you know, sex uh, place, you know, like kind of like the apartment, uh, you know, Fred McMurray and Jack Lemmon. Um It's an interesting movie. It's obviously very much in the Eastern European style, very much uh, critical of the, you know, kind of Stalinist uh, Soviet regime that was going on. And uh, it's, it's a very bleak movie. I would say it's more accessible than some of Bellatar's movies. It doesn't really have those long takes, but it is in black and white, and there's not a lot of dialogue, and you kind of have to read between the lines about what the character's motivations are, and also how this sort of state-sanctioned, um, you know, misery uh, as a result of these economic circumstances really leads these characters to have no choice in their in their actions and their agency. It's a fascinating movie from a feminist standpoint, too, in a lot of ways. Um, I give it three stars. Again, Hungarian cinema, very bleak, not uh, obviously the most commercially appealing cinema, but I appreciate that TCM is looking beyond just American women directors and really focusing on these Eastern uh, European women, many of whom had um, some prominent films in the 1970s. So the film is Adoption. It's on, um, you know, uh, TCM. Obviously, you know, I believe it won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival in 1975. It's a cool movie. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, but probably not, like, you know, to get excited over. It's really pretty bleak and depressing. But, uh, for what it's worth, I enjoyed it. Good times all around.
1: Nice. Nice. So, I will say, I, uh, as I was updating our website, almostsideways.com, check it out. Um, and looking at what came out this week, uh, there are a lot of really fascinating international films that, uh, debuted on Netflix this week, so, um... Worth worth looking at that worth checking that out, um, like I I found like four different ones that came out this week from everywhere from Nigeria to Malaysia, to um, oh one of the Scandinavian countries I don't remember which one, so yeah there's some really interesting stuff that came out this uh, this week on there so that's one thing that I got from what you said second thing is um, something else on the TCM app that I found this week is another film that I watched at the same time I watched Countdown. Uh, And that is another uh, space movie that I remember very little about, but it came out around the same time. It's called Marooned. Marooned.
2: Yeah, I saw that available on on TCM as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it came out in December of 1969, so it came out after the moon landing, but it was obviously written and filmed everything before. Uh, And it's got Gregory Peck. It's got uh, Gene Hackman. Um, those are the main two recognizable faces in it, but, um, yeah, a very young Gene Hackman before he really was a big deal, but, um, yeah, so Marooned, so, if you want another random space movie.
2: Listen, Terry, you got to know the trivia behind that movie, right? That is what Marilyn Lovell watched prior to the Apollo 13 launch that led her to have a nightmare about Jim Lovell. Did you know that? She had seen no. that movie, and that's why she had the nightmare. It was the night, it was, I believe, the night after she saw that movie, that's when she had her nightmare. Or maybe yeah, I'm just making it all up. Sense. I could be that, making that would, it all up. I've, I've been making stuff that, up already tonight about, uh, you know, T-shirts in Vegas and stuff. But I believe that is a true story.
1: It makes sense because, I mean, it came out in December 1969. I mean, Apollo 13 was April of 1970. Right. And it would make sense that she would go see this movie.
2: Right. And, and, and you know, he went with in the Corvette. And uh, the kids had a lot of work that week. And, uh, you know, they were coming back, you know, Henry, you know. And uh, they had been at Marooned, right? Maybe I'm, I'm mixing up Gosh. the chronology a little bit. That's, conspiracy that's theory.
1: Fascinating. I like that conspiracy theory. All right. Well, let's move on and get into our uh, our featured review this week. And our featured review is another brand new Netflix movie that came out this last week. And that is The Boys in the Band.
2: I couldn't care less what people do as long as they don't do it in public. No, it's the delivery boy from the bakery. Ask him if he's got any hot cross buns. <laughs> Where the hell could Harold be? Happy birthday. You're late. Oh, Michael, you kill me.
0: When he's sober, he's dangerous. When he drinks, he's lethal.
1: Uh, Zach, I'm going to you first on this one. All right. Uh, tell so- us all about the boys in the band and uh, what you thought.
2: So The Boys in the Band is a remake of the 1970s, sort of groundbreaking William Friedkin um, movie, and which itself was based on a play, I believe, that premiered on Broadway. Um, it was kind of groundbreaking in the sense that it, it would, it, uh, you know, for a 1970 movie, it's, it was pretty shocking to have um, an all-gay cast with all-gay all, the, all gay characters. And so um, this is a remake that's directed by Joe Mantello, produced by Ryan Murphy, and has uh, basically an all-gay cast, not just of the characters who are gay, but also the uh, performers in the movie are out in, uh, in real life. And so um, it tells the story of one night at uh, Michael's apartment. Michael is played by Jim Parsons in the movie and it is a birthday party for the character of, what was his name again, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, Harold's Birthday, played by Zachary Quinto and um It's uh, sort of a uh, who's who of different sort of um, gay archetypes, that's maybe my criticism of the movie. You have the sort of closeted figure, you have the bi figure, you have the figure who's very promiscuous and flamboyant. But anyway, they all sort of come together at this uh, sort of birthday party and there's a lot of sort of intense emotion and some really shrouded um, antagonism and hostility a little bit and it kind of all comes to the surface. And then the second half of the movie is really where they uh, play this game where they they have to call someone up on the phone and um, tell them that they love them, which in 1968, when this movie is set in New York City, would have been pretty risky because of the sort of anti-sodomy laws that existed and, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the, the um, risk that you ran when you were publicly out. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was actually, uh, I have not seen the original Boys in the Band*, but I really liked how the characters had some interesting backstories in it and you got to kind of know them as you went along. And yes, I agree that the flaw of this movie is that the characters are kind of neatly packaged in archetypes. However, if you kind of look past that, you can see that the movie's kind of, I I think, uh, very contemporary in a lot of ways, dealing, um, again, with issues of being out in the community, but also the feelings of self-worth a lack of self-worth um, that I'm, uh, I'm sure a lot of gay men feel. Um, I thought it was actually a very well-produced movie, given that it's all limited. It it never felt stage-bound, even though it all takes place in one setting. And um, I thought it was, you know, it it was fine. I don't think it's necessarily an Oscar movie, but um, it was an enjoyable watch. I liked all the characters in it. I thought it had a pretty interesting message. And uh, also, at times, it managed to be quite funny, too, with some really standout performances um, by Jim Parsons, Matt Bomer as uh, his boyfriend Donald, and um, particularly, I I I would say, Andrew Reynolds and uh tuck watkins as hank and larry who are this couple that are sort of going through some some issues in their relationship so um, i really enjoyed it solid three-star movie Uh, really a movie that was fun to watch more so than it was actually a truly great movie so i really like these characters solid thumbs up all right todd what's your take on this one
0: uh yeah i agree with a lot of what zach said i what's interesting is the movie is listed on imdb as a drama i don't really feel like that encapsulates what it is because there are a lot of like really like cheap zingers especially early on like the movie is pretty funny and uh, especially like the gigolo guy that comes like he's like a great yep. amazing larry bing tim high roller character like <laughs> he keeps the movie from going on like full on depressing because it's, it's like he's like he's like the pool boy who in, in a porno but he gets like stuck in the drama for the duration of the movie so all he can do is really just like flirt and pass out and say dumb shit which is kind of awesome uh, but uh, the style of the movie is definitely built for me, though. It's it's a real, yeah, really limited sets, you know, rambling conversations, really obviously dialogue-heavy, and the mm. dyna- dynamics of the characters really are established early on, so they could just let them breathe as it goes along. So, like, in the first, like, 20 minutes, like, you already know everything you're going to know about these characters, and I, I like that, it, which kind of made it seem like a, a, like a Neil LaBute movie or something like that, which I guess is as high of praise as I could give a movie like this, like, And Jim Parsons is awesome, like, he really shows his range, and I didn't even know he had that range, and Zachary Quinto is, like, this really laid-back, snobby performance that is just awesome, and and another performance I didn't expect to see from him. The whole cast is really good, honestly, except Matt Bomer also does look like he, like, walked out of a porno. I right. but that's, I don't know. Um, in the end, uh, the, the movie does explore some really universal themes, you know, love and depression and loneliness and regret, but it's it's all wrapped into a really kind of complicated package, and I, I'd be interested to see what the original looked like, too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm right with Zach. I give it three stars.
1: All right, so we got three stars from both of you guys. Uh, so I'll say, coming into this, I was kind of on the fence. I was, like, right on the two-and-a-half, three-star... Range. I wasn't quite sure what to think of it, and I could be swayed. I think you guys have swayed me. I'll I'll tip to the three stars and make this choice. It's approved. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, and and I agree with a lot of what you guys said. The performances I think are really the strength of this. It, the the performances of of the whole cast and the way the cast works together is awesome. Um, I feel like the the script is something that is, I can imagine was. Um, very effective for the time it was originally made yet now i feel like it it, it's it's weird to have a movie that came out this week that feels dated the second it's released and it kind of feels that way um i i would have liked to have seen at least a little bit of like modernization of it like maybe take this story and put it in today instead of keeping it set in the 60s and making it feel that dated. Um, I think that that could have been, um, that, that would have been a lot more interesting. Um, I think watching it, I'm like, okay, there is like a masterpiece of a story to tell in this. I don't feel like the payoff really gets there, where, um, I mean, you, you walk into this and everything in like the first half hour is telling you, There is a whole lot of backstory here that it's not letting on that, you know, is going to be revealed throughout. And I don't think the payoff of the reveal necessarily is worth the setup as much as it could be as much as it could be. Um, So those are really, really my, my main beefs with it is I, it's good. I just wish it would have been better and um i could see this being a very very effective play and so and i i'm like i would love to see this on the stage but um but yeah I, that, that's that's where i'm at and that put me right on the edge i'll go along with you guys and give it the three stars though
0: well the, this cast did do uh the a revival of it on the stage and won a tony for it like 2019 but so, oh I mean, that's interesting i didn't say- see that. So, yeah, I mean, so uh, that's why they didn't update it. Plus, like, the game would never work because, like, everyone would be, like, stalking their ex or the person they loved on Facebook or whatever
2: that's exactly what I was going to say Todd is that I don't that's the reason why I don't think you could put this in 2020 is that I think in in this movie the elephant in the room is the fear of being outed publicly I mean these are for the most part really successful people I mean you look at Jim Parsons apartment it's an amazing apartment Um, and he's ostensibly doing something very successful and I don't know if he's necessarily out Uh, he sort of talks about that in sort of shrouded detail but you know um, a lot of these phone calls that these guys make are to people that don't necessarily know they're out so so um, I think in 1968, pre-Stonewall, that's really significant, versus 2020, I don't know if it necessarily has the same impact.
1: That's a valid point. That's a valid point.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I enjoyed this movie. I thought it was fun to watch, and uh, like Todd was kind of saying, really funny at times too, some great characters in it. And I also agree with Terry. I in uh, I have another sort of mindset that's like, this actually could have been a four-star movie. It, but I I sort of don't think it takes a lot of risks. I think it sort of stays in relatively safe territory. I don't know exactly how it could have taken more risks necessarily but I feel like it tried to take risks particularly with the black character played by Michael Benjamin Washington that I felt the payoff for that really and I don't know if that's what you were specifically addressing Terry but I, I didn't I felt like that was a very muddled part of the movie that I'm not sure the movie fully knew how to navigate. It wanted to bring up issues about race um, and sort of intersectionality in the gay community, but I don't know if it ever really resolved those issues. So, um, I mean, I guess props were bringing it up, but it didn't really execute that.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that was part of it. And I think another one that um, that really, I don't know, le- left you wanting more was the uh, just the relationship between uh, Alan and Michael, the, the college roommate, and Jim Parsons. I mean, yeah. it, it sets up so much going on there yeah. in the background, and it doesn't pay off any of it. And you are as left in the dark at the end as you were at the beginning. And, I mean, there's, that's okay. You can do that, but you, you need to give
0: something.
2: <laughs> that's fair. That's a fair criticism.
0: <clears throat> they have an awesome party deck in that movie. Like, yes. that would be, be the place to have a party.
1: That that whole apartment was just amazing.
2: The best birthday gift was that boardwalk, uh, the, the 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 kitschy yes! art piece. <laughs> I want that. I would put that totally in my house. That's amazing. I can't remember who got that, but that was a great gift.
1: Well, that was a uh, that was Emery. Wasn't that Emery that got it for him? I feel Maybe. like it was.
2: Maybe I can't remember.
1: I think it was. No, I, no, no. Emery got him the
2: cowboy. I think it was right. Hank that got it. Um. That yeah, could be. Maybe not. I agree, though, Todd. I think there is, I mean, I don't know if this movie will ever get serious recognition, but Jim Parsons, I think, gives the best performance in the movie, and I think should be considered for an Oscar nomination. He he's uh, he shows a dimension here that I've never seen him give before, and he is, I think, crazy good in this movie. Really shows how bitter, angry drunks operate. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: yeah and that that was that was kind of a fascinating thing of how how everything turned dark as soon as he took a drink Yep, that was
0: uh it was also right when uh harold showed up
2: yeah that's true and can can we just say if this movie had been set in 1985 jeff goldblum would have played harold (laughs) oh absolutely uh
1: yeah yeah all right well thrice approved there it's easy to find on netflix check it out uh may not be one of the highest uh, viewed ones on netflix right now you gotta maybe search for it a little bit but it's worth the search it's worth checking out uh boys in the band uh yeah cool thrice approved well speaking about going to a dark place after you start drinking let's start talking about <laughs> our deep dive
2: Great. <laughs> Great Did you
1: like that segue? Did you like that? Um, Alright, so we are deep diving the uh, 25th anniversary of leaving Las Vegas.
0: I'm,
2: gonna love you. I'm Ben.
0: I'm Sarah. So brings you to Las Vegas. I came here to train myself to Come death. There, sure. Why don't you stay at my place? Okay. This is
1: the home of an angel. Are you okay? Of course. The film that made us all these crazy crappy movies that Todd's talking about, we can say, are starring the Oscar-winning actor Nicolas Cage. All of that is because of this film. Um, so, uh, let's get into this. We're going to start with our trivia game and, uh, and see how our contestants do. Since Todd is the master of leaving Las Vegas, we're going to start with Zach. And so, Todd, unplug and go home. And uh,
2: Zach, here we go. All right. Isn't it so, surprising how oftentimes the so-called expert on these movies doesn't win trivia? Like you know, beat me it, in Clueless it, trivia. So That's true.
1: It's true. It, it's it's it's, it, it's it's weird how that happens sometimes. Um, I don't know if it'll happen this time. I don't know. It feels like the the expert just kind of gets lazy sometimes. Maybe. And yeah, then that's fair. and then that where where the one that has isn't as well uh, versed in it is like really paying attention to a lot of details. Okay. So uh, this. This quiz is worth 18 points, and it is 18 questions. So, let's, let's get it. into it. First question. Uh, what did Ben get the credit for writing but was fired from? Bay of Pigs. That the is a movie correct. I
2: want to see someday.
1: Yeah. Um, where does Ben live in L.A.? Uh,
2: no clue. Uh, yeah, Pacoima. You're just yeah, well,
1: the, the only reference we get to it is he lives in a house on the beach.
2: Oh, come on, that's man. It. You could have phrased that question in a much better way. Like, where does he tell Terry that, he lives?
1: That, 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 that's all you get. Okay. Um, I did everything I could to come up with um, a trivia question surrounding every specific mention of alcohol during this movie. So here's the first okay. one of those. Number three, what drink does Ben want to have with the bank teller?
2: Uh, God, I I don't I have no clue. Uh, vodka it's, tonic, bourbon, bourbon. Okay, that,
1: that's the one where he wants to like, bourbon all you over her body. Pour, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, number four. This is a, this is a trivia question from my wife as we were watching it. She kept on saying, "Ooh, this would be a good question." So here it is. What color is Ben's coffee cup when he gets fired?
2: <laughs> it's a great question. I have no clue. Blue. <laughs>
1: It's it's bright red. I mean, that's the only okay. reason I actually did it, is because it is kind of stands out like a sore thumb okay. in there. Uh, what is the name of the hotel Ben stays at in
2: Vegas? The whole year in, or the whole year that in, is depending on how your sobriety.
1: <clears throat> exactly. Uh, what drink does Ben offer Sarah when he first introduces himself on the strip?
2: Oh God! I mean, these drink questions are going to kill me. I have no clue. Bourbon. Uh, no, beer. probably not. That's the one time beer. he's drinking okay. beer. Okay.
1: Uh, Number seven. What drink does Sarah request when she first goes to Ben's room?
2: Uh, <sighs> is it the drink that Todd is drinking? Can I can I say yes, that? Yes, it is. All right. Uh, I'll give it to you. It's tequila. there. We go. Uh,
1: next question. What did Sarah order when trying to seduce Arlie Ermi?
2: Oh, uh, pina colada. It looks oh, like a I'm pina colada. Get-
1: I'm gonna give you half. It was a margarita, but you're right. It does look like a pina colada. Um, I'll give you that. Uh, let's see here. Next question. Uh, what did Ben and Sarah have when he took her out to dinner? Spaghetti. That is correct.
2: But he, but you know, he doesn't eat it because it's too salty.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Uh, what is Ben's one condition on him and Sarah being together?
2: He can. She can never ask him to stop drinking.
1: As I take another sip, that is correct. Um, what was, uh, the man holding when Ben fell asleep at the gate to Sarah's apartment? What was the landlord holding when Ben fell asleep at the gate to Sarah's
2: apartment? Was it like a swimming pool net cleaner thing? It was a golf club. Oh, okay.
1: And then, and then he was like trying to pass it off like he was practicing his golf swing (laughs) as they were walking into the... That's
2: right. With Laurie Metcalf. Yep.
1: Yep. Yep. Uh, next question. What does Ben try to order at the blackjack table?
2: Oh, I, I, no clue. I couldn't hear the sound in that scene. It was a Bloody Mary. There we go. I'm totally uh, okay question. with Todd winning this trivia. Maybe that's anticlimactic, <laughs> but I, <laughs> he should win it.
1: It'll be interesting to see how well he does. Uh, next question. Whose face is on the top of all the cabs in Vegas?
2: Oh, the guy with the uh, the mullet. Red mullet. Red mullet is correct. We need to talk about him. Who is actually Mike Figgis. Yes, I, I, I read that. I read, we'll talk I about read him. Some
1: more. Right. Yeah. A lot of next thoughts. Next question. What... What does the girl in the bar order before her boyfriend punches Ben?
2: Oh, God. I, I have no clue. I don't know.
1: It's a, it's a rum and coke. Okay. Uh, when Sarah asks how uh, Ben feels after he was punched, what does he say?
2: When, so this is after the, the headbutt. After, after he was punched
1: and he uh, shows up at the apartment with He's, a bloody face. I know she she asks, says,
2: Are you, she asks if he defended a, a girl's, or he says he defended a girl's honor. Does that yeah,
1: count? And she says, yeah, no. No. no she says, I, I how know. are you feeling?
2: And he says, like, know. the cling-clang king
1: of the Rim-Ram Room.
2: Wow. I'd be impressed if Todd got that. That would be, like, yeah. next level.
1: All right. Next question. What movie are Ben and Sarah watching at the Desert Motel?
2: The Third Man, which I actually had to look up. I had to look it up, too. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't remember that scene. Uh, next question. Ben showers with two bottles of what? Uh isn't it vodka
1: it's vodka yeah and the last question i'll give whoever gets the closest according to imdb how many best actor awards did Nicolas cage win for this film nine all right so we'll see who gets closest on that one who on who gets the point all it's probably right higher okay so uh we have a uh an 18 point quiz there are 18 questions uh zach and one of zach got eight and a half points with one pending okay so and he he said he is fully content if you end up winning this because uh apparently it was pretty tough okay uh first question uh what did ben get credit for writing but was fired from
0: bay of pigs
1: that is correct uh where does ben live in la there's one reference to Come where on, he re- lives.
2: rephrase it, Terry. That was a weird way of asking that question. What I'll rephrase it. Where does he tell Terry that he lives? Uh, oh okay, never mind. I thought I thought that would clear it up.
0: I don't know. The the east side. I don't remember. <laughs>
1: In a house on the beach. Oh,
0: on the, Okay. What? Well,
1: uh, <laughs> that's that's a, what I mean. That that's was a, such
0: a weird question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. I, I had to, on had the to try beach. to find a way to re- yeah, I had to try to find a way to reference that line. Okay, so uh, this next question starts a trend of questions for the rest of the quiz. I tried to find ev- uh, come up with a question for every reference to a specific co- type of alcohol throughout the entire film. So uh, this question: What does uh what drink does Ben want to have with the bank teller?
0: Oh, uh a bloody mary.
1: That is incorrect. It's bourbon. Bourbon all over her body.
0: Oh, when he's recording himself? Yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: as he's okay. watching the bank teller.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah
1: uh what color this this question is from is from cassie she uh she kept on asked uh giving different references to questions and saying oh this would be a good one and i decided to throw this one in uh what color is ben's coffee cup when he gets fired it's very prominent in the scene actually that's that's why i asked the question
0: i'm gonna say blue it is bright what red what is right. the name of the hotel ben stays at
1: in vegas the whole year in? Yes, that is correct. Uh, what drink does Ben offer Sarah when he first introduces himself on the strip?
0: Uh, gin and tonic. I don't
1: know. He pops out of the car with a can of beer in his hand.
0: Uh, oh, okay, that's when it's a beer.
1: Yep. Uh, what drink does Sarah request when she first goes to Ben's room?
0: Tequila. Tequila. A shot of tequila. That
1: is correct. Uh, what did Sarah order when trying to seduce Arlie Ermy? Uh, margarita? Margarita is correct. But it that looked was like a, half a
0: point. pina colada.
1: Yeah, he said it looked like a pina colada, so I gave him half a point. Because it did look like a pina colada. Um, what did Ben and Sarah have when he took her out to dinner?
0: Margaritas? What food
1: did Ben and Sarah have when he took her out to dinner?
0: Oh, mexican food uh spaghetti they went to a mexican restaurant
1: and they had spaghetti (laughs) (laughs) no it was like a pirate place it was a pirate i think it was
2: treasure island yeah
1: uh what is ben's one condition on him and sarah being together
0: that she won't ask him to stop drinking
1: that is correct Um, what was the landlord holding when Ben fell asleep at the gate to Sarah's apartment?
0: I have no idea. A golf club. Oh, okay. That's right, he does take a swing.
1: Yep. He tries, tries to mask the fact that he was just working on his swing when they are walking through the gate. Um, what does Ben try to order at the blackjack table? Scotch. I was thinking about a Bloody Mary. Okay. Um, and then he flips the table. Alright, uh, whose face is on the top of all the cabs in Vegas?
0: Mike Figgis?
1: Uh, yes, and what? And I'll give you the point, but do you know what the name is?
0: It's like... it is Mike Figgis. It's like Red something.
1: It's Red Mullet. Well, I'll give you the point, because Mike Figgis, it is his face, but it... It is his face with the title "Red Mullet," in, in in the font that actually that that font that's like the official voice of that font. That's what I'm going with. Um, <laughs> what does the girl in the bar order before her boyfriend punches Ben? <clears throat> <laughs> uh. <laughs> I didn't I didn't realize
2: these were going to trip you guys up this much. That's a horrible question, man. I mean, it's like impossible to answer she comes
1: up and buy me a drink okay i'll buy you a drink what do you want and she orders a- cosmo Rum and Coke. Rum and Coke. uh when sarah asks how he feels after he was punched what does ben say
0: when what so when he gets back to her he place? gets back to
1: the apartment his face is all bloody there's blood on the shirt and she says how are you feeling
0: Like, he needs a drink?
1: Like the cling-clang king of the oh. Rim-Ram Room.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Uh, what movie are Ben and Sarah watching at the Desert Motel?
0: The Third Man.
1: That is correct. Uh, ben showers with two bottles of what?
0: They're the same liquor?
1: They're the same it's, thing,
0: yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, it's clear. It's got to be, I'm going to say vodka it's vodka like th-
1: there's a very clear shot of him holding it up and there's a giant vodka label facing the, the screen okay that means our last question here is the one that's pending oh shit and 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 it the score right now is eight and a half to eight zach is winning so so this is gonna decide it all right todd whoever gets closest gets the point according to imdb how many best actor awards did nicholas cage win for this film
0: I'm going to say 18.
1: The answer... Uh, so, Zach said 9. You said 18. The answer is 17. So, Todd wow. gets the last point And by a score of 9 to 8.5, Todd pulls off the
0: win somehow. Congratulations. That was so, brutal, Terry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew you knew this film well. So, I wanted to make sure I, I gave a a worthy... A worthy uh, trivia game. And you
0: didn't, you didn't ask what he pours down Sarah at the at the Desert Song Motel.
1: No, I didn't say that. I no, probably should have, but scotch. I didn't. That one was scotch. Okay, I, I missed the label on that one. Um, what? No, what was I going to say? Oh, so Zach and I, as soon as you pulled out your headphones, we were talking about how the the quote unquote expert in all these trivia games more often than not ends up losing the trivia. And, uh, and then you almost time. lost.
0: <laughs> I think I've only won this like when we did "Gone in 60 Seconds." Like I'm terrible at these. <laughs> uh,
1: and and that's and that's saying something because I mean we both know that movie pretty well. Anyways, okay. Well, Todd wins trivia, and Todd, this was your pick. So tell us all about uh, what "Leaving Las Vegas" is about, and uh, your experience with it, and why you think it's such a great movie.
0: Okay, uh, "Leaving Las Vegas" is. Based on the novel by John O'Brien, which is an amazing book it's it's in two chapters actually it's just one chapter is about Sarah and one chapter is about Ben and it's like uh, it's like just pure poetry and adapting that into a movie will be hard enough, but making it into this movie is even more impressive it's it's about a guy named Ben Sanderson who is a Hollywood screenwriter who it appears uh his wife left him because he drinks too much and so it made him drink even more and then he gets fired from his job and he decides he's going to move to las vegas to drink himself to death but he meets this prostitute named sarah and she is just amazing uh and they develop a rapport because they have empathy for each other even though they can't exactly relate to their situation they they feel like i get what situation. you did there
1: a rapport huh? Ah, a
0: rapport nicely done
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: But they have empathy for each other, and they develop this strong bond, and she agrees to be with him on his journey into into his uh, eventual suicide of alcohol. And I watched this movie for the first time, I think I was in high school, and it got me more than pretty much any movie i'd ever watched like it was the like the saddest thing i'd ever seen at the time and it was immediately one of my favorite movies and i've i've seen it a handful of times since i watched it twice this week and there's no preparing yourself for the last like 30 minutes of this movie it will get you every time and it is impossible to ignore the impact that that the movie has and it, i mean i just wa- i watched it twice in 3 days and it's still i i still go through the exact same emotional roller coaster it's a uh, it's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's as close to a perfect movie as, as I can think of. It's easily, for me, the best movie in 1995. I think it's the best non-documentary of the 1990s and one of the ten greatest movies that I've ever made. It is, it, it's a masterpiece in, in every sense of the
2: word.
1: All right. Zach, what are your thoughts on this one?
2: Well, that's hard to follow. Man, <laughs> one, of the, one of the ten greatest movies ever made? Shit! Okay, well... What do I say about Leaving Las Vegas? Okay, so I remember being nine years old at a Blockbuster video looking at the poster for Leaving Las Vegas. And this was before Nick Cage was Nick Cage. The very first Oscars I ever watched was the 1995 Oscars, which we talked about two weeks ago. I don't want to talk about it excessively, but we do need to bring it up again at some point. Always intrigued by this movie. Um, I think what happened was I saw the Siskel and Ebert episode when they reviewed Matchstick Men, and Ebert, of course, loved that movie, excuse me, Ebert and Roper, and they actually showed a scene from Leaving Las Vegas. It was the scene early in the movie when Ben is drunk, and it's a scene with Richard Lewis, and they're at that kind of get-together at Musso and Franks, and he gives the guy a massage, and I was like, holy shit, I gotta see this movie sometime, because it looks awesome, and I did see it, I did love it. I don't love it as much as Todd, and that's all I'm going to say right now. So, g- go for it, Terry.
0: <laughs> well, I got to say, the reason why I originally watched the movie was because Gone in 60 Seconds was my favorite movie of all time, and then, but I watched the Inside the Actor studio about Nicolas Cage because I watched everything of Nicolas Cage at the time. I was like, oh, he won an Oscar? That's interesting. And I didn't even care about the Oscars, and that's why I eventually watched this movie. So, that evolved into him just being, not just like my favorite movie star, but like One of my favorite actors.
1: So, uh, I think before, I I watched this a couple nights ago. I think that was the second time I've ever seen it. I watched it once probably at the same time Todd watched it for the first time. And, um, and I never watched it again. And I don't don't even know why. Um, I liked it. Um, I'm looking here. I, I gave it three and a half stars. After watching it again, it probably deserves to move up a little bit. Um, but in my rankings of 1995, I have it right next to Mr. Holland's opus. And I feel like that's... It, it, may, be, it may need to go up a little bit. It's right below Kids, um, which is another, you know, completely bonkers movie in a completely different direction. Um, but 1995 is a great year, too. And so it uh, it probably deserves to be up a little bit. It's sitting right now just outside my top ten of the year. Um, it might need to sneak up into it. I'll have to play with that in my head a little bit. Um, but, uh, I think I, this absolutely establishes Nicolas Cage as a legitimate actor and, um, and really it's after this that he becomes the, the movie star, right? I mean, the next year he does The Rock and then, like, this is, this is what makes Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage, um, and uh it wasn't until until this movie and his oscar win for this that that everyone really recognized the star power he had and uh and for that alone this is this is noteworthy but i i think the the film is is a remarkable achievement as well um so let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Zach, you mentioned the, the well, Oscars a little. Hold bit. Hold on, I just make. want
2: I want to clarify one more thing. I'm almost identical to Terry. Where I ranked this movie going into watching rewatching it, I had it my number eight movie of 1995. Right around Mr. Holland's Opus, I'm right in the same territory as as Terry. I'm right around Kids as well, and Heat, and uh, Seven. 1995 is a great year, but uh, it yes. was, Le- yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at it. Kids, Mister Holland's Opus, and Leaving Las Vegas are my 11, 12, and 13 of
0: 1995.
2: And it, so. it Todd. Would you say it's? I mean, if it's your top 10 movie of all time, it would have to be your number one of 95, right?
0: Yeah. Oddly enough, my number one and number three movie of 1995, or movies of 1995, both have Arlie Ermy and Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> because of Toy Wait, Story. what's the other one? <laughs>
1: Toy oh, Story. Toy, Toy Story. Story. <laughs> oh,
2: okay. Good call.
1: That's really funny. I, I like how, how 1995... I mean, like we said, 1995 was a great year for movies because like, Leaving Las Vegas is like a top 10 all-time movie for Todd. Yet, Zach and I... I Apollo 13 is like a top 5 all-time movie for both of us. And that was 1995 as well. And so... It just shows just how good of a year 1995 was. So let's talk about the Oscars a little bit. Because he wins the Oscar. Um, and... Leaving Las Vegas has four Oscar nominations, and and I'm going to defer to some of the Oscar experts that are not me on this this podcast. So, it is nominated for four Oscars, actor, supporting actress.
0: No, best actress.
1: Or actress. Actor, actress, director, screenplay. Todd, has that ever happened and not Oscar also?
0: Or not best picture? Or picture, uh, I mean, yeah, not picture too. Well, my man Godfrey uh, did my that. My man Godfrey. Not, not my many, man four, All four, <laughs> four acting categories, director and screenplay, but not best picture. And that was when they still had, you know, ten. So that makes even less sense. But, <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's com- it's completely ridiculous that you could have that combination without best picture. I mean, it would never happen now. I, at least like, I think that would be almost impossible now. But
1: Yeah, I don't think that could happen.
0: I mean, I, I think it should have gotten several more nominations. I think it, I, I mean, the cinematography is I, I, is pretty astonishing. And I, I guess they didn't get any uh, permission to film where they shot, like, when they were on the strip. So they were just, like, guerrilla shooting, like, randomly in the streets, uh, like, one take, so they couldn't, so they wouldn't get caught by the cops and stuff. Like, I mean, and, and it looks beautiful. And it's the, it's the cinematographer who actually did your guys' favorite thing of the year, Hamilton. Which I, I think is odd because I know, I can't see the similarities at all, and it, I also think Mike <laughs> Figus's score is one is one of the best scores of the '90s. Like it, it that that music is forever in my head, and I I, I, I don't know how they couldn't they could have especially when they had two categories at the time for a score. I, I I can't see how it would have gotten overlooked.
1: Yeah, it is a brilliant score. That, that's a great point. Yeah, I I I I think it's. Uh it's really strange however at the same time i feel like leaving las vegas it feels like a very not oscars movie too and and uh maybe maybe it was it it split some votes with the other vegas movie of the year casino i mean i don't uh, i don't know i I don't know but it doesn't
0: nomination
2: yeah and what are you talking about the one other vegas movie you're forgetting showgirls man
1: oh i'm sorry and showgirls don't there we go
2: don't forget it
0: uh, <laughs> that's that, that one french guy's number one movie of the 90s or whatever right
2: <laughs> yeah jacques rivette yeah the 90 year old french director from the new wave <laughs>
1: uh that's that's the first jacques rivette uh shout out we've had in a while um but yeah uh i i find it interesting you look at both of the uh both of the actor wins that year are are two of potentially you could say two of the coolest movies of 1995 that don't feel at all like Oscar movies because you have Nicolas Cage and Leaving Las Vegas and you have uh, Kevin Spacey for um, for the usual suspects two movies that that I think you could say are, are like those those just like movie geek out movies. But movies that you don't necessarily say these are Oscar movies, and and Usual Suspects ended up walking away with more with more Oscars than uh, than Leaving Las Vegas did because it won original screenplay.
0: I'm not really convinced Leaving Las Vegas isn't an Oscar movie though because other what, what other reason what, would or what what category would you put it in? Kind of, I mean, I guess yeah, I, I would say it's in like that like Foxcatcher kind of realm where it's like this this really disturbing piece of art and. Like I don't. I mean, if the Oscars don't recognize it, then who is going to? Is it's such a low budget movie too.
1: That's a good point. That's a good point. But uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of that in between. Um, and we talked about this a few weeks ago when we when we did our deep dive of Braveheart. Um, of, I mean, if if this if this vote were to happen now, and we talked about this then. But that was more in the context of, of does Braveheart get left out. Now let's look at it more of if the Best Picture vote were to happen now, how does Leaving Las Vegas get in, and what else gets in? Does Usual Suspects get in?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about that. The screenplay win is telling, and that I would think that 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 ha- that would have to be a Best Picture nominee. But
1: I mean, especially if if we're going on the five to ten scale like they have now, um, Zach, what do you think?
2: Oh yeah, I think it's absolutely gets nominated for Best Picture, and uh, I think it might even win Best Screenplay in a revote for the twenty twenty Oscars, in part because of the tragic history of John O'Brien. The uh, original author of the book that Todd referenced earlier, who killed himself, you know, um, two weeks after the movie went into pre-production. And so I think that that sort of, you know, personal story has impact on Oscar viewers as well. In fact, I'm sort of surprised this movie didn't win Best Adapted Screenplay. What won Adapted Screenplay that year? It was Sense and Sensibility, right? Emma Thompson.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, right.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Now that that is your classic Oscar film.
2: Okay, so here's my here's my trivia qu- or uh, conspiracy theory question: If Harvey Weinstein produces this, this movie, it wins Best Picture, right? It has to. I mean, th- th- this is absolutely because this movie is not Miramax; it doesn't get the critical love that it deserves among the Oscar voters. But if it's a Miramax movie, this movie wins Best Picture, I think, pretty clearly, right?
1: Picture? Oh,
0: I don't know that it was it would ever win because I mean, it 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 is somewhat of a divisive movie. I. I mean, because I, what, what his movie that year was Sense and Sensibility, right?
2: Well, no, his, it, it was Il Postino. That's, that's where the Miramax money went all in. Oh. I don't think Sense and Sensibility was Miramax. But, like, yeah, so, you know, they get Massimo Teresi and a movie that no one really remembers, and Leaving Las Vegas is left off the best picture ballot, but I feel like if they opt to produce that movie, it gets a lot more Oscar love. Which, and it's absolutely in the vein of the kind of movies that Miramax was producing in the mid-90s.
1: I know we talked about this a couple, year, a couple weeks ago, but this is like the most eclectic best picture lineup ever. And I think it's worth saying again, because you've got, you've got Braveheart, the epic. You've got the technical achievement in Apollo 13. You've got the token British film in Sense and Sensibility. Okay. But then you've got this random Italian thing... And then Babe, the Talking Pig movie, and and uh, and then with leaving out Leaving Las Vegas, leaving out The Usual Suspects, leaving out Dead Man Walking, leaving out Toy Story
0: seven. I mean, like th- there leaving are, out seven. Yeah. there are so many but, like top one hundred IMDb movies that are from nineteen ninety five that were completely ignored by the major categories of the Oscars.
1: And I think it's fascinating to look the best director lineup that year. Only three of the Best Picture nominees got in. And it's not the three you'd think. Mel Gibson won for Braveheart, and then it was Chris Noonan for Babe, and Michael Radford for Il Postino. And then you had Mike Figgis for Leaving Las Vegas and Tim Robbins for Dead Man Walking. I mean, that you could easily, like, take out Gibson, Noonan, and Radford and throw in, you know, Ron Howard, Ang Lee, and Brian Singer, and... I, I don't know if you could find someone that would argue that that was, would not be a better lineup.
2: Terry, who would you vote for Best Actor for 1995? And This is like the drinking game in, like, The Boys in the Band, okay? You gotta put up or shut up. Tell us, who is your vote for the Best Actor in 1995?
1: Do I have to go from the five nominated? No, of course
2: not. Okay. Gosh. Um... My vote's Tom Hanks, by the way.
1: I mean, that's ridiculous. <sighs> Gosh. For, that's, for Toy that's...
0: Story, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes that I makes mean,
1: Looking at... Th- that's such a hard question. Because... I mean, Nicolas Cage is amazing. I, I think he deserved the win. Um, Sean Penn in Dead Man Walking is awesome. We've already done a deep dive of Richard Dreyfuss and Mr. Holland's Opus. That's an amazing performance as well, um, and, and of all the performances that like that are like just the heart wrenching. I would say that one that one hits me every time. Um, I would say Massimo Troisi got nominated. He is very good in that movie too, and I don't know if he deserved a nomination, but he's very very good. I haven't seen Nixon. That's a, one of the nominees that I haven't seen. But then just looking at what didn't get nominated, like you said, Tom Hanks deserves to be in there. How about Ethan Hawke for Before Sunrise? He deserves to be considered Morgan, um, Freeman, Morgan Freeman in seven uh, or Brad Pitt in seven. Who, who's the lead there? I mean, I don't even know. Um, I think it's it's worth considering Michael Douglas for the American president. We've already talked about that movie, too. Um, I, I mean, there's so many that deserve mention here. I don't know. I don't know i am I'm, I'm gonna say the fact that we can say Oscar winning Oscar winner nicholas Cage is uh, that's enough for to break like the ten way tie that's there. However, it would have been amazing to see Tom Hanks be a three a back to back to back winner. dude the three Pete
2: so what 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 <laughs> who who's your who gets your vote?
1: I'm going. I'm going. Nicolas Cage.
2: I. I I think. I think it's. I'm I'm going. Nicolas Cage because.
1: I mean. I think it's. It's more worth it to see to say Oscar winner Nicolas Cage, than to see the three people.
2: That's fair. Okay.
1: And and we know what Todd's vote is. And and you said Tom Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's Toy Story. In Toy Story. (laughs) That
0: makes it a little better. <laughs> yeah, I have Nicholas Cage ranked as my number five best actor nominee, or be, like my fifth best leading actor performance of all time. What? What are? What are the four ahead yeah, of them?
2: we need to hear this. Yeah, breaking news.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, number one I have Robert De Niro in *Raging Bull*. Number two, Not Al Pacino in *The Godfather*. Number three, Jack Lemmon in *Days of Wine and Roses*. <laughs> number four, oh. Rex Harrison in *Unfaithfully Yours*. And then I have Nichols' Cage. What,
2: Rex Harrison and Unfaithfully Yours? This we need to wow. hear about. That that's the one about the composer, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't have watched it if it wasn't one of Tarantino's ten uh, favorite movies of all time. But uh, you know, it was remade
2: with du- with Dudley Moore. Uh, it was supposedly wow. a terrible remake.
0: I did. I didn't know that. But I mean, Rex Harrison is like I mean, he does things in that movie that I've never seen any actor like accomplish. Like he's amazing. Wow.
2: This is intense, man. This changes everything. You need to everything. watch this movie. <laughs> Unfaithfully Yours. Uh, greater come, than Nicolas Cage in Lemus, we Las we Vegas? We come to the stable.
0: I've never seen it,
2: but... I, I actually mean, own to that movie. To the stable. I own the Criterion version of it, but I've never watched it. Of what? Unfaithfully Yours? Yes. Why? Why have you never watched it and... I don't know. I, yeah, I, you know, it's I, Criterion. I'm not, not going
1: to complain about that. I own about a hundred <laughs> movies that I've never seen.
2: <laughs> wow okay rex harrison. yeah so maybe wow Regeborg. maybe that's a come to the no. stable what does th- he say sorry uh yeah rex harrison <laughs>
1: <laughs> steph has steady. a reach borg uh, i i can't i i'm sorry i can't hear i, I can't hear rex harrison that. without hearing stewie from family guy that's i mean yeah
2: can we go to okay. recasting? Let's recast this movie. Come well, on. I, we, we got we, we got go. a Mount
1: Rushmore. We got to get yeah. to oh, first. Oh, okay. Oh, but let's let's okay. do Mount Rushmore first. Um, which I and and so we're going we're doing a Mount Rushmore here. Uh, and we we've, we've done a lot of Vegas stuff before, so we couldn't go back to Vegas because when we were in Vegas, we talked pretty much everything we could about Vegas except deep diving, leaving Las Vegas. So instead, we're doing a Mount Rushmore of movie alcoholics. Um. This should be fun.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, are we going to agree Nicholas Cage is on the list or not? Or Are we going to agree that, that Miles I... is on the list or not?
1: <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, can we agree to two and just have a have a five man five man Mount Rushmore? And and
2: yes, let's do it.
1: And just say just say that, you know Those the other the Roosevelt p- the other Roosevelt needs to be on Mount Rushmore or, or no 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 the Nationals have have Taft. The Nationals have Taft running in the in their race, Perfect. so they have five. And Miles so, is Taft. So
2: Miles <laughs> is Taft. <tapped.
1: laughs> yes. <laughs> and Nicholas Cage is Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Alright. Um, I'm gonna go first. Uh, my my submission for movie alcoholics. I mean, there, there's a lot of different places you could go with this, but the first one that popped into my head outside of, you know, Nicolas Cage in leaving Las Vegas was Jimmy Dugan in uh, A League of Their Own. Oh. Um, That's the most
2: terry pick ever.
1: <laughs> it is. It totally is, but it's totally worth it. Uh, uh, just, just a, just a flat out drunk former baseball player being forced to coach a bunch of girls. I don't have ball players, I got girls. Not, not, not ones I want to be on the ball field with. Ones I want to sleep with after the game. Yeah. Uh, that wow. That's that's my submission for, for Movie Alcoholics. The, the other day I was
0: just thinking about Jimmy Dugan because I was at work <laughs> and one of my coworkers got out of his truck and he was limping just like Jimmy Dugan and he adjusted his hat as he was walking to the back of his truck. And I was just like, I wish I had just recorded that. <laughs> because that was beautiful. <laughs>
1: I mean who else signs a baseball for a kid with the with the moniker Avoid the Clap? I mean <laughs> and so I, I, I mean it's it's kind of a lighthearted one, but uh but Jimmy Dugan, A League of Their yeah, Own. I That's love, my submission for Movie Wizard Alcoholic. I loved you and the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh Zach, you're next.
2: All right, I'm going to go, because Todd's going to be pissed off at me by the end of this podcast, so I'm just going to go with something that I know he'll like, which is um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead in uh, Smashed. Um, Yeah,
0: she was on my list, too.
2: Yeah, maybe not the first pick you'd go with, but man i love smash which is a movie that todd turned me on to it's i mary elizabeth winstead's best performance um it's a great companion piece to leaving las vegas in the way that it shows how when you're an alcoholic you have to um compensate and you have to rationalize and you have to lie to people and mary elizabeth winstead does some a lot of lying in that movie to herself and to people in her workplace and the people that she loves Um, And it's a great portrait of how the recovery from alcoholism is not just a self-recovery, but if you don't have your partner also invested, who's played in the movie by Aaron Paul, it collapses, and it is a staggeringly great performance. I believe it's my number one best actress of 2012. Um, It's uh, an amazing movie that I think barely missed my uh, top 25 of the decade. Um, It is a truly, truly awesome movie, um, and it's, it's the first performance I thought of.
1: I haven't seen it, but I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead, so I'll have to check it yeah, well, out. Yeah,
0: well, James Ponsult directed that. He also directed this movie about an alcoholic <clears> umpire <throat> played by Nick Nolte and Off the Black, and he also directed The Spectacular Now, which is about another alcoholic. Alcoholic, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, uh, Sutter, who is actually one of the ones I was considering too, which is uh, that, played a by That's a strange
1: niche to have as a as a director.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, the and then he goes and makes that movie, oh, right. The Circle, which is like this massive budget movie with Tom Hanks that was terrible. I, I don't know, I don't know how how that, that transition was
1: that the tom hanks emma watson movie yes yeah okay
0: um so i mean i was gonna say the spectacular now is my choice potentially but i can't exactly go with james Ponsoldt twice so i'll go with the movie i just mentioned a little bit ago which is kind of like the earlier version of the spectacular now which is days of wine and roses and the character played by jack Lemmon, joe clay and that it's just a, a really tragic character and it's one that it's like he meets this girl, and she doesn't drink, but he loves to drink. So he kind of systematically finds a way to turn her into an alcoholic too, so that they can have a relationship. And it's it's a really complicated movie, and it's really grown on me over the years. I think it's a top fifty movie for me now, and uh, it's a it's a beautiful movie and a, a one of Jack Lemmon's truly great performances. Obviously, <laughs> I have it in my top five leading performances of all time, but uh, that that i mean yeah that, that would be my submission if i couldn't choose spectacular now
1: that reminds me of the moment on uh, on jack lemon's inside the actor's studio it's like one of the greatest moments in inside the actor's studio of mm-hmm. history yep. is when jack lemon reveals live like on the show for the first time in public that he himself is an alcoholic um it, mm-hmm. it, it's it's just an outstanding moment and uh, i haven't seen that that movie and i think that might be the movie they're talking about when that's referenced but uh probably but yeah
0: the other two that i was thinking about were uh billy bob Thornton and bad santa and amy schumer and Trainwreck, yes. which would both be obviously more comedic picks but terry stole the comedic pick by picking jimmy dugan <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's no one better than jimmy dugan if you're going co- comedic pick so yeah the other ones i had i had written down i had uh paul newman in the verdict uh richard burton in uh, who's afraid of virginia wolf and then um bradley cooper in a star is born
2: oh good call Bradley Cooper's a great call. Yeah. The the only other one, I mean, Ray Milland, of course, you know, really personified. Yeah. He was, did The last Weekend. He won an Oscar for it. Best um, Picture.
0: That's, best like, picture. one of the most outlier Best Pictures of all time.
2: But I want to draw my attention to a movie that was in both of your top 25s of the decade. That is Boyhood, Marco Perella as uh, uh. Bill... I mean, talk about the maybe one of the most evil characters in the history of, of cinema. Um, but you know, an alcoholic, um, but an alcoholic who we have no sympathy for whatsoever. And if that guy ever appears in another movie, he will never be another character than that 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 character etched in etched in your mind. He couldn't play anything else because that character just reeks of um, evil.
1: He probably reeks of several things, but evil yeah. is definitely one yes. of
0: them. <laughs> I was also thinking of several characters in in uh, Trailer Park Boys, like uh, like Leahy and uh, uh, the one guy who always has a rum and coke in his hand. But I wasn't going comedies; that was going to be hard.
1: Like I said, I mean, if you're going to go, there, there's How only about, one way to go if you're doing or, that, and that's to do again.
2: And then, of course, we got we have to mention Dennis Hopper as shooter in Hoosiers that got, was the other one i was thinking that. of i forgot yeah.
1: about that yeah yeah
0: that's yeah that's a good one
1: that that was one i i thought of in the oscar time i was Dennis writing Hopper. them down i forgot to write it i forgot to put it down yeah that's that's a great one to mention
2: okay and, so we've uh, got, sorry we've got one to, last thing denzel yeah. washington flight not a great movie great performance though gotta put that on there
0: yeah
1: iconic for sure yeah all right, so we've got, we've got Jimmy Dugan, A League of Their Own. We've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character in Smashed. We've got Jack Lemmon in uh, Days, of it, da- Days of Wine and Roses. Days of Wine and Roses. That's what I thought it was. And then we've got Nicolas Cage leaving Las Vegas. And, uh, and the uh, William Howard Taft of our Mount Rushmore is, uh, is Miles Raymond from <laughs> Sideways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would appreciate that, I think. <laughs> all right well now let's get into our recasting so we always recast our deep dives we look at who would play these characters if this movie were to be made today um the the great the the great thing about this one is there's so few like actual characters you could go with i think todd your comment on the on the text thread was if we go beyond ben sarah and yuri we're just being ridiculous (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) and 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 it's kind of hard to argue with that so Um, The first one we're going to recast is Ben, uh, played by Nicolas Cage, Oscar winner Nicolas Cage. Um, Todd, who is your Ben?
0: Okay, so, well, I I thought it was way too easy to just, I mean, there are two that I could could picture playing uh, Ben and Sarah, and I didn't choose them just because they're too obvious, and that's Miles Teller and Kristen Stewart. Like, that, that, I mean, it's, like, sold, uh, uh, like, automatically. Like, they would they would be able to do it. So I went a little bit different. And I remember I did this article back earlier, like, maybe 10 years ago on our website. That was, like, the future of Hollywood leading men and women. And I used Alpha Dog as an example of, like, a group of actors who could be the future of leading men and women. And I compared one of them to Nicolas Cage. And that was Justin Timberlake. And I think that he has the absolute just, like, magneticism about him. Because, like, Ben is a kind of, I mean, he's, like, low-key, like, sort of an attractive dude. And he's actually kind of sly. And Timberlake can uh, embody that. And he he also kind of has this, like, self-loathing about him that is really interesting. And I think he would be an amazing Ben Sanderson.
1: That would be, like... One of the first, like, hardcore, like, acting moments for Justin Timberlake. And I, I, I agree. I think he could pull it off. I don't think he would ever do it. That, I think that that's that's the thing there. He's, right, he's, Zach, had so,
0: you... he's had some dramatic performances, but yeah, that would be his... Like, that would be the, the pinnacle of, like, if, if is he really an actor? Like, then, yeah, he, he would... I, 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 yeah. I would love to watch it.
2: Yeah. All right, Zach. Who do you have for Ben? By the way, we forgot about Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea. Another great um, alcoholic oh, character. Oh, that is
0: a good one. In fact, yeah. someone
2: who could probably be recast as Ben. That's that's I think feasible. I went with, um, I mean, I went with um, Simon Helberg because he gives a great impression of Nicolas Cage <laughs> and Billy Baldwin um, and Ben Affleck, uh, not Ben Affleck, Ben Stiller. Um, but in all seriousness, uh, Joaquin Phoenix I think is the obvious choice. Ooh. Maybe a little old at this point, but I think it's sort of the <laughs> obvious one. Elephant in the room. Yeah, Nick Cage was 31 great. when this came out.
1: I know. I saw that, too, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how young he was. Yeah. Okay, That that's a great, that's a great call. I think Joaquin Phoenix would be great. Um, so the first one that I thought of when thinking about who could play Ben um, was James Franco. Mm.
2: I, that was yeah. my other choice. Yeah. Good one. That's a good call.
1: I thought that would be a good one. <clears throat> then i saw just how young nicholas cage was in this and um when i thought about age my i shifted to somebody else and that was shia labeouf
0: oh uh, yeah yeah that would make it so intense <laughs> i know
1: i know but he would he would totally like own that like he would be amazing he would be a ama- Both of them. I, could, I couldn't I could pick has, one, so I'm saying both. James the, Franco or Shia LaBeouf.
2: I like the Franco pick better, and here's why. Has Shia LaBeouf ever been funny before? Like, that's the genius of Nick Cage in this movie, is that there is humor in this role.
1: I mean, did you not watch Even Stevens as a kid? <laughs> I, I that's a fair point. <laughs> I didn't watch Even Stevens either. I didn't either. Uh,
2: <laughs> Apparently he was funny. As a twelve-year-old, it was
1: like a Disney show comedy. Yeah, I don't know. I think he could be. I mean, he he was gonna be like the next big thing. I mean, he was gonna be the next Indiana Jones. He was, he he like owned a, the entire Transformers franchise for a while, and it takes a it takes some charisma to be able to do stuff like that. And no, I mean j- just look at like what he did. I haven't seen it yet, but you you look at the what he's doing like in Honey Boy.
2: Okay, how about he's able to
1: put himself out there like that?
2: I would be more interested in a making of feature about Shia LaBeouf getting into the role of Ben than him actually playing Ben Sanderson.
1: (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Like I said, my first choice is still James Franco, but I I couldn't ignore the idea of Shia LaBeouf. All right, let's move on. Uh, Sarah, played brilliantly by Elizabeth Shue. Uh, Todd, who do you got?
0: Well, like I said, Kristen Stewart could do that in her sleep, sort of, but I mean, that's not to take away, because a little bit shoe is amazing, and probably the best leading female performance of the 90s, but I, so I with <laughs> someone, Whoa.
2: okay, sorry, that, I'll that's, a, true,
0: that's, a, that's a true fact, <laughs> um, so I went with somebody, <laughs> it's just who, science, <laughs> who similarly had, I mean, because Sarah is a character that you have to like, and, and not, and she doesn't, And she's not necessarily the most like attractive hooker you're ever gonna see but she's got like this this aura about her that makes her really cool and like almost like half girl next door kind of thing and so i went with elizabeth olsen because she has a similarly like raspy voice and she doesn't and she's not like an obviously like sexy lady or anything like that but like it like that but that absolutely fits the character of sarah because that's a character that's not all that easy to cast and I don't know. And she doesn't get a whole uh, enough of these kind of roles that she absolutely can do, but she I guess cuz she's stuck doing Marvel all the time, but yeah. So, Elizabeth Olsen and Justin Timberlake are my very oddball recasting of this movie, but I think it'd be amazing.
1: Yeah, uh, have have That's you seen call. the trailer for WandaVision? I mean, that thing looks trippy with the like the Disney Plus TV show with uh with um scarlet witch and and uh vision that looks yeah I that's what she's box. doing instead of instead of stuff like this yeah you should check it out it's trippy for sure okay uh zach yeah
2: Elizabeth- you, uh, who do you who do
1: you have uh replacing the uh the greatest performance of the 90s
2: yeah, no kidding. Um, that, that's a great call, Todd. That, that is the best call for if you're actually trying to um, redo this movie. If you're doing like a John Favreau, Lion King-esque remake of this movie, yes, Elizabeth Olsen. But I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. I'm going Laverne Cox because oh, <laughs> I think Laverne Cox could nail this role. And I don't know. I would like to see a little bit more diversity. And this movie was a little bit ca- overly Caucasian. Let's let's change it up a little bit. Let's make things a little bit more diverse, a little bit more inclusive. I think Laverne Cox would nail this role.
1: I am totally on board for that. I totally agree. Yeah, she's t- that would I be mean, amazing.
0: That be she would make it too obvious that that she's a prostitute though. Like it's got to be someone super so. low key.
2: I don't. I don't. I don't think so. Laverne I, Cox I think is she... like
0: a very like imposing figure. Like I. I mean, that's why Elizabeth Shue is so effective, because she's just, I mean, she is so low-key about her character. I don't know. I mean, that would take it a different direction, but I... I,
2: Like I said, if you're doing the the straight remake, go ahead and cast Elizabeth Olsen. I'm taking my movie in another direction. Simon Helberg, Laverne Cox, sign me up for that.
1: I feel like I'm watching a debate between Steve Carell and Romany Malco in 40-Year-Old Virgin. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the Cadillac.
2: <laughs> I have a 40-year-old version point I want to bring up later in this podcast, but go ahead. Oh, okay. come on, Michael McDonald? All right. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so my pick for Sarah. Okay, so I, So Elizabeth She was 32 years old when this movie was made. So one, one of the things I always do when we're doing these recastings is I start... By going to a list of actors or actresses that are the same age as that person uh, when the movie was made. And so I looked up 32-year-old actresses, and one popped up, and once I saw her, I couldn't get anybody else out of my head, because she is a dead ringer for Elizabeth Shue, and I think could actually pull it off. And that actress is Cody Horn, who played the lead female in Magic Mike. Um she is like legit look up pictures of her dead ringer for elizabeth shoe she's the same age as she was in that movie and i actually think she's got the acting chops to pull it off like she did some amazing stuff in magic mike you know soderberg wouldn't pick someone who didn't have some have a great acting you know the, that those great acting chops to be able to be in one of his movies like that in, in a lead role um so yeah, that's who I'm going with, is Cody Horn, Kind of someone off the radar, but, uh, but someone who would bring the exact same vibe Elizabeth Shue brought to the role. I, and you can too, almost say in a lot of a, ways that, that, that leaving Las Vegas and Magic Mike are very similar.
0: <laughs> well, Terry, our mother always said that Elizabeth Banks, she thought that, that was Elizabeth Shue. Like for the longest time, so
1: that's yeah. She'd say that because the first name was Elizabeth, though. Well, they <laughs> do—they actually
0: do actually kind of look alike, but I mean, I mean she's way too old.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They—they—they—they're about the same age almost. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we've got one more here, and this is—and I would honestly say this is kind of stretching it in, in saying like main characters, but
0: Yuri—he's the only other one that has like two scenes other than Murska Hargate. Uh,
1: i know i know (laughs) which brings up something else i want to mention later um but uh but yeah yuri who's played by julian sands uh who is sarah's handler slash ex-boyfriend slash not quite ex-boyfriend anymore slash guy who creeps the hell out of her um i think that's that pretty much sums sums him up uh anyways todd who is your yuri
0: well he's from latvia Uh, with eastern (laughs) europeans so i looked up like eastern european actors and apparently eric Bana it comes from a croatian family Uh so that's what i went with and uh, in funny people he has a pretty awesome like thick accent in that movie so i think he probably could pull it off
2: i don't know i I, i've never seen him play a truly evil person before you you realize
1: in in funny people that's his actual accent right (laughs) like he he's got an australian accent
0: but it's overdone. That's why they make fun of him.
1: <laughs> well, but yeah, but that's like that's like who I know, he I is. know, he
0: is Australian, yeah. but his his family is Croatian. So
1: that's a lousy pick. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I
0: think it'd be, I think it'd be funny, though. I mean, not funny. I mean, it'd be interesting watching. But plus, I never. When am I ever going to cast Eric Banna I hate him as an actor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that's a good point. All right, Zach. Who do you have? Easy call, Michael Fassbender. Done move on uh yeah can't beat
0: it Uh, that would make him way more principal character like he he does have a lot bigger part in the book but in in the movie like there's no way he's signing on for like three scenes
1: i mean i would say the ideal would be like peter stormare if this movie was you know made in 1996 or Mm -hmm. yeah like he he would have been perfect if when he was that age um, anyways, my my pick for uh, for this is uh, is uh, Jasper Paukenin, because he needs to be in something other than a racially charged Spike lead joint, and he's a great actor, and he's I think he's Finnish, so he's he's European, not quite Eastern European, but Scandinavian at least. And I mean he's gone from KKK to being a bomb diffuser in Vietnam, and uh, I think he could, <laughs> I think he could pull this off. And I just love seeing him, and I think he'd be a good a good uh, good Yuri.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good one. That'd be way more realistic than having Eric Bana in that role, I
1: guess. Yes, yes, way more realistic. That's what I'm going for. Um Well but alright, so what I wanted to mention was the fact that there are so many like notable people in this movie either people that were notable at the time or people who became notable that have like one scene
0: like danny houston or, or dude i totally french caught Stewart. him too French yeah french steward yeah.
1: french Stewart yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and he was actually notable at the time because didn't i think third rock was already out at that point but um
0: he looked like he belonged no. in boiler room or something just him sitting there all pissed off <laughs> like i'm about to have like a like a strip show
1: Danny Houston was on the screen for literally like a half a second, and and to like to like give her his little like quippy comment to Elizabeth Shue after Arlie Ermy left. And I that half second I saw him. and went, that was Danny Houston. That was Danny Houston. And uh, I yeah, I I caught that one. I couldn't believe I caught that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like Laurie Metcalf and Ar- Arlie Ermy. I
1: never yeah. I never recognized Lori Metcalf. I nope, I couldn't recognize her. She was, yeah.
2: I thought that was obvious. I didn't, I,
1: yeah, I couldn't recognize that one. Arlie Ermey, I was like, okay, I know who you are. Who are you? And then I had to, when I looked it up, I was like, oh, how well, did I never I think I'd ever seen him that?
0: with a beard before.
1: Yeah, that, that that's what threw me off. That's what threw yeah. me off. Uh, but yeah, so many different people. Like, I was even looking at the cast list for this movie. Well, and then you've got, in the very first scene, you've got Richard Lewis, who has one scene... And and Steven Weber who's in who was in a bunch of stuff in the nineties too. Like he was a known commodity in nineteen ninety-five. All the way to like Lou Rawls is the cab driver at the end of the movie. I mean, you've got it's ridiculous how many people are in this. Anyways. And then and then Valerina Galino has one scene. Um Yeah. yeah. It's ridiculous how many people they got it. And maybe it was because it was in Vegas. Like, there were just all these people hanging around Vegas. Like, hey, we're doing a movie. You want to come be in it? Just sit in the corner and say these few lines every now and then. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Um, highest war performance. Most irreplaceable character in this. Zach, you're first.
2: <laughs> okay, so I'm going to recall our conversation about A Beautiful Mind and i'm going to suggest that we rename this award the austin pendleton award for highest war performance because the obvious pick that everyone's going to go with is nicholas cage but for me there is a war performance of a minor character that is so perfect and todd knows what i'm talking about because we've had conversations about this character before that it cannot be possibly recast and that is thomas coposh as imdb lists him as mr simpson but i know him as bill Nicolas cage's boss at the movie studio call it the austin pendleton award wow that guy is so a movie studio head i I mean the, the the way that he dresses the office the his demeanor um i mean there's i i might as well just put this out there like that scene wins a lot of my awards in this podcast i'm just gonna let you know right away that actor is perfect in that role. I think a lot of actors would relish playing an alcoholic like Nicolas Cage. A lot of our actors would relish playing the prostitute with a heart of gold. But to cast a sympathetic yet stern boss who understands and is compassionate about Ben's condition is extremely tricky. And I think that is a great performance in his one scene.
1: That, that is a, a definitely random pick. For sure austin pendleton that was what you said was, was yeah your, he was the the, wanted...
2: the guy from the nobel prize committee that awarded john nashley oh
1: award. oh gotcha
2: he was my gotcha. highest war in a beautiful mind
0: and he popped up in another movie we reviewed right but i don't remember what it was
1: oh yeah what did he pop up in was it joe i want to say it was joe <laughs> sounds,
2: right. Joe. That sounds, that sounds <laughs> right or a league of their own <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh okay Um, I'm going to go next. Um, yeah, the obvious choice here is Nicolas Cage, but I'm going to go with something different because I was thinking about this. There aren't a whole lot of main characters in this. However, there are some movies, and I think this is one of them, where the location is a main character and is a, it plays a character. And so I'm going to say the highest war in this movie is Las Vegas. Um, because literally this movie, the city is a character in the movie. And you cannot see this, this film and this story play out anywhere else. Like, Las Vegas is the one place this, this could happen. Like, I kind of feel bad that we are not having this conversation in a random hotel room in Las Vegas like we did with our Vegas podcast, right? I mean, it, it only feels right to be able to do something like that. And, um, but I, th- I, I think that is the most outside of Nicolas Cage. And I'll let Todd talk about Nicolas Cage or whoever he's going to talk about. But I'm going to say my highest war performance is the city of of Las Vegas and how it plays such an integral role in this and how this film couldn't have been made anywhere else. I want to know where there's a title.
0: A a biker bar in Las Vegas, though. I want to know where the hell that place exists (laughs) because that did not look like anything I've ever seen in Vegas.
1: Definitely not on the Strip. (laughs)
0: Like, Old Town or something, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Alright, Todd, what do you got?
0: Uh, yeah, so, I mean, like like we were saying before, Nichols Cage was 31 when this movie came out, but he looks like he's 45 to 50. Like, it, he, they, the work that he does to make himself look like he's been worn down by years of alcohol abuse is amazing, and he looks so old and so horrible. Like, his hair, the, even the way he's shaved... Like he he does not look like he could be be anywhere near like my age, it, but it's it's amazing the the amount of work that he put in and like just making that character actually sympathetic, but by all the reprehensible things that he does. It's because Nicolas Cage is just so irreplaceable at doing that kind of thing, and it, it I don't know. I mean, it, it it's hard to fathom. Like, like I, I tried to recast it, but I mean, it's still it's it, Nicholas Cage could play it again now.
1: It's like one of the few roles where all the Nicholas Cageisms that he has in this movie fit the character perfectly, and don't feel like, all right, that was just Nicholas Cage being Nicholas Cage. They all like, like this is where all of them were born. It feels like.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Everything this, this except for, like, the action Vegas. run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something with him in Vegas, I guess. All right. Uh, worst performance, uh, I'll go. Uh, it's Yuri. Julian Sands. I. I he's horrible. Uh, he. He's just kind of there and... Not, I mean, uh, his, his entire performance is the accent, and that's about it. That's all he's got. And, uh, and other than that, it's, it's not even worth mentioning. So Yuri is the, is the worst performance. Zach, what do you have?
2: I completely second that. Um, no further comments, except I would say that uh, Shawnee Smith as the biker girl, girl, I believe, watched um, Something Wild with Melanie Griffith a little uh, too many times and was basing her role on that. But it's absolutely Julian Sands who is uh, uh, the, the worst part of this movie.
1: Todd? Do we have a thrice approved on worst performance?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with you guys, but uh, if I'm going to mention something different, it will be uh, Jeremy Jordan as College Boy Number Two, uh, because he <laughs> looks like he's like this like forty year old version of Private Downey and A Few Good Men, and but he's supposed to be in college. He just has this like angry look on his face. He's like he's like I want, f- but and uh i don't know it's just a I mean, I mean it's bad and he's like miscast and off like i mean he looks like he's in his 40s like why <laughs> like why is that the kid that they got to play that role
1: is is that the one that they that they uh that they got her for or is it one of the ones that got her
0: i think that that's he's the, the kid the, that had his shirt off yeah the, the one that comes out of the bathroom okay the, the other
1: one. Yeah. Yeah. Watching him I got a I got a serious like Donnie Wahlberg Sixth Sense vibe.
2: <laughs> I, I absolutely understand what you're saying Terry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had the same reaction actually.
1: <laughs> just him him in the bathroom just looking all 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 shy and you I mean, like I, I down a gun, you. Instead of a gun coming out he he socked her in the face. <laughs>
0: Yes, let's, let's giggle over the rape scene. Cheer, <laughs> cheers, guys.
2: Wow.
1: <laughs> well, we weren't taking it there, but thanks, Todd, for making us look like complete morons. Uh, Amazing Larry, Big Tim High Roller. Todd, who do you got?
0: Uh, I went with the, uh, his character's name is Man at Mall, and is played by the director of Five Easy Pieces, Bob Raffleson. Bob
2: Raffleson. Yep. Yeah
0: because uh, he's like uh ben's about to screw everything up by just like walking out and uh he he stops him and he's like he's like no ma- hey maybe you actually should wait for her. you know it's uh it's a sweet moment that almost seems out of place like he like he's like his guardian angel or something and th- that character I, I don't know it's a creative character to drop into a scene like that where it, it was about to go seriously south and uh, he's pretty much saves the day
1: Good call. Good call.
2: Zach, who do you have? Okay, well, uh, again, this is going to be a repeating theme. I I would go with Bill, Ben's boss. That's going to be my answer for, like, about ten of these award categories. He's the best uh, minor character. But for the sake of making things interesting, I would go with all of the cameo appearances by the director, Mike Figgis. He plays the mobster who is at the gas station in the middle of the desert. He plays um, the guy who is the red-headed mullet. He plays um, someone else, I think, later in the movie who is a mobster involved with Yuri's schemes at the casino. So, um, yeah, it's basically like a who's who of Mike Figgis, when he'll show up. Um, So maybe I'll go Mike Figgis, but really my answer is Bill. Where's Bill?
0: Where's Bill?
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, all right. My pick is a uh, David Brisbane as the landlord. I just love that character. I don't think he has a single line in the entire movie, but he he has to be dragged by Laurie Metcalf everywhere, because he's the actual boss. Like like it, it, everyone everyone who's married has that knows that that moment where it's like okay, I have to just be the man here so that the wife can do what she needs to do. <laughs> And that's that's what he is at all times. It's like, We need to go do something about this. And you're coming with me so we can. And he goes, no, whatever. <laughs> that I, I love that role. And then and then it just like his fake like I'm working on my golf swing as they're walking through with his golf club. I love that moment. So So yeah, that that's that's my pick is uh is David Brisbane as the landlord. Alright. Biggest stick man uh, I'm gonna go first. I'm going Richard Lewis with <laughs> Peter. I mean What? <laughs> he's
0: that was he's, my obvious,
1: too. he's obviously wow. on a first date. I it was a toss up between him and Stephen Weber, but I mean he's the one that's actually talking and he's the one that's actually, you know he he's the one that's working that that's working the room a little bit there and definitely knows that um what what he's got on his hands here and uh and yeah, you know that wasn't his his first his first first date. So uh, I'm I'm going with Peter, Richard Lewis. That's Todd. Todd, that was your pick too.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the chick sitting across from me was super hot. Even though I mean, it was probably some sort of more like an actress <laughs> studio business meeting sort of thing. But it was it was totally a date. But yeah, she was like like damn, she was hot. And but he he I mean he also looks like this like yuppie kind of like uh you know patrick bateman kind of character like i mean yeah those guys are always getting it in and he was he was the more obvious one of the two
1: yeah definitely the more obvious of the two and i feel like he got so mad at ben for uh not necessarily for being his the drop dead drunk but for interrupting the date i think that that was (laughs) it's like dude do you see what I'm doing here? Why are you here?
0: And then he just like gives him a wad of cash, and he's like, "Don't! I don't want to see you again! Like, get out! <laughs> here! I don't
1: want to see you again! Do you <laughs> see what's sitting across from me? Leave! It- it's pretty obvious." Okay, Zach, who do you have?
2: I have a two-way tie. I went with the gu- My number one pick was the guy who Elizabeth um, Shue was talking about. Uh, with the large erection um, in her uh, therapy scene. <laughs> I mean, he's got Beautiful. the talent. Maybe it's like a little bit Marky Mark, Boogie Nights type of thing. He's a star in the making. And then um, my other pick was Joseph Cotton in The Third Man. Because, you know what? I mean, she's very much into him in that moment in the movie. It's a powerful moment, and, you know, he's got... The guys and uh let the let the imagination happen i need more alcohol beautiful,
1: beautiful. You're, <laughs> your biggest stick man in a movie todd
2: todd can is I the ask guy you a from another movie <laughs> is this movie Jeez. better than un- do you really believe this movie is better than uncut gems
0: i mean i'm not gonna answer that because i mean i think there's a chance that uncut gems could be one of those movies that becomes my one of sideways for me because i cannot get enough of that movie but as of right now i have it ranked higher but i'm not sticking to that
2: let's let's return to this question on october 3rd 2021 okay let's just i'm I'm just gonna put that out there okay sorry Move are we gonna do like a deep dive of uncut gems every six months (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> October 4th. Excuse me.
0: We could easily do an Uncut Gems deep dive again and it would be different, completely different than the first time. Yeah. Like
1: every yep. 6 months, we could we could yep. just do it, devote an entire Maybe episode. Maybe just every it. episode. <laughs> <laughs> we we are now the Uncut Gems podcast. <laughs>
2: Benny and Josh would listen. You could get them on.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see here, who's... Todd, since I stole your answer the last time, you get to go first. On the, uh, the Swan Micah Oliphant Douchebag Award.
0: Well, I I texted Zach and said, this movie has the most Swan Oliphants since Boogie Nights. Like, I mean, this is... (laughs) The
1: the, the most, uh, the most douchebags per capita of any film? absolutely.
0: So I have about six written down here. I guess I will choose, um... Xander berkeley as the cynical cabbie damn you yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean i could choose a different one (laughs) just go go
1: for it just go for
0: it well i mean just i mean he has like five lines and they're all just so like demeaning and horrible like he's like you know you had trouble sitting down you get a backdoor delivery you weren't expecting you're gonna be able to pay for this and then he's like oh i'm just uh, i'm just covering my ass (laughs) there's something you should have done I mean it's guys like that that invent the category really. It's it's I mean he is so so horrible. I mean but I could see him easily being this like underpaid cabbie uh, in Vegas. I mean he low key kind of like high like high war performance I guess. But um uh, but it, I mean it's that scene that really reflects like why the movie's so brilliant because like it, like she has all this shame, and but she doesn't want to be judged at the same time. Like when Nick Cage is getting kicked out of the casino, he's like, you know, you don't get to judge me. Like I feel like she feels that at the same t- in that scene, and like a lot of the other times, why they connect with each other and um, why they have empathy for each other. But either way, that I mean, that, that Cavi still. I mean, he's he's the I I thought he was one of the biggest douchebags.
1: Okay, he he invents this category, and he's the definition of this category because. He is the definition of this category twice in one year, because he also plays Henry in Apollo, Apollo 13, Thirteen, who Henry. is the douchebag who hits on the teenage daughter Five. of the Lovells. Like the, this is the Barbara. <laughs> this is the reason he is, the, and he's the one that goes to their house and is like the the TV crews want to put a transmitter on your lawn so they can broadcast live from your front yard. <laughs> I mean, he is the he is. The definition of a douchebag in two movies in 1995. Two different movies. So is this going to be the, I, I like a thrice this,
0: approved?
1: <laughs> I, I want to rename this award the Xander Berkeley douchebag yes. because yes. he is just a douchebag. The 1995 I, I like,
0: Xander Berkeley award.
1: <laughs> like if I ever run into this guy, I'm going to punch him in the face.
0: <laughs> another person i want to punch in the face was the desk clerk at, at the at the motel that they go to because like i mean that role now would be played by like dale dickey or something but like when she's like you know uh we get a lot of screw-ups here you know like she says it in such a condescending tone i'm just like damn she's got like the most punchable female face it, i've ever seen
1: <laughs> it totally would be played by her too yeah. it totally would be played by her <laughs> All right, Zach, are we thrice approved on Douchebag? Is that what you're saying?
2: No, no, no. I, I got to read. This is like reading my honorable mentions on our uh, power rankings. Um, I'm going to go with several right now. Uh, I'm going to go for with Terry. Terry. Not because she rejects Nicolas Cage, but because she actually takes the drink and accepts it and doesn't even finish it. That's a that's a low blow in my mind. I'm gonna also go with Paul Quinn as the biker guy who headbutts Nicolas Cage. Total dick yeah. move um arlie a- a- emery we've, we've already kind of talked about him uh, you're a hooker what is he in like a 1950s movie give me a break
0: <laughs> why no i mean why what is, who is he trying to fool like he's not even there yeah. with his wife like i mean what is the matter with i mean like, like a hooker comes up to you and starts flirting like, what who are you like what are you trying to do
2: <laughs> he's he's terrible lori medcalf as the apparent um you know landlord of the of the motel or whatever i also want michael mcdonald for some terrible music in this movie, and then my last pick was Massimo Teresi for getting a best actor nomination over Tom Hanks. Uh, I have also a feeling thought,
1: Zach's quote of the day is going to be Paul Rudd in a forty-year-old version.
2: Screw you, Terry! God damn it! Now I got to think of another one.
1: No, you don't have to. Just go with it. Just okay, go with I'll it. do it. All right. I didn't say the quote. Okay. okay I just I'll said that that's it. what it's going to be.
0: Okay. <laughs> My other ones were the the Stetson man at the casino because, I don't know, like he puts he puts his chips in Sarah's like dress and like wants some action then asks us yep. ask if he, she's on strike like I mean that's I mean I can't imagine how much more douchey you get other than the, the actual they're they're listed as college boys but they're wearing their like football uniforms like they it's like they're still in high school. I don't, I mean, and that is, like, as douchey as you get if they really are in college. Plus, they get, like, a 66% discount on the hooker, and then they, like, gang rape her. There's no, I mean, that goes beyond douchebag. I mean, that's...
2: You've... Todd, you're forgetting the biggest, most egregious part of their douchebagginess, which is giving a bad name to the best resort in Las Vegas, which is Excalibur. I mean, they they are maligning the name of the greatest resort yeah. casino. Yeah.
0: Are they walking across that skywalk? Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, they totally were. Yeah. like yeah. I, I, I was noticing that too. I was like, we, we stood there. We stood there It's the, the
2: greatest resort in Las Vegas is Excalibur, and they're giving it a terrible name. How dare they? They should win. they got to be the biggest douches in this movie. And with we all due respect to the Uncle cab driver. We Uncle Jack's
0: Irish coffees right now.
2: <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, what's the best scene? uh let's see here i'll go first my 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 best scene is the casino scene like the whole the whole like sequence in the casino leading up to like when he flips over the blackjack table like that's the first time you realize holy crap this is how far he can go and you don't really realize the the violent side of his alcoholism until that moment and uh until that, it was just like, you know, this is just, this is just amazing, just like, this is so sweet and cute, and why does he have to keep doing what he's doing? It's like, oh, crap, that's who he is. Okay. And, I mean, that that's like the scene where it all turns in so many different ways. Well, that, I mean, that so just that's, gives that's you that's my the reflection
0: scene. of the fact that he knows that his life uh, has to be over. Like, he has to kill himself, because he's through everything out literally like he has nothing left he has to die and he knows that even though he loves this girl he can't let her stop him from doing that because otherwise he's he's going to die in another way and i don't know yeah that that yeah that is the absolute furthest depth study that he gets yeah and he starts screaming about like like i'm that boy's father like i mean i've never really understood i've never really understood that i mean he has uh yeah that's brutal
1: yeah it definitely goes into some places that never ever get explained but uh yeah all right zach talk more about the uh hollywood producer
2: yeah that's that's the best scene in the movie but um if for for the sake of curiosity i will also say the scene when um elizabeth shu gives him the uh uh what's it called you know what i'm talking about todd the when she says um Oh god. I, this is what I mean. I what I should use the flask. The like, flask. Yes, exactly. When yes. When you're moving yes. into the same place. Um,
0: I'm with yes. the right girl.
2: I'm with the right girl. That that's <laughs> oh, yeah, the second yeah, best he, scene he's in the movie. It's like
0: almost weeping. Yeah, I mean, that's a beautiful scene. That
2: it that is a great scene. That uh, that exemplifies the best qualities of this movie, which again, not a movie that was a great rewatch for me unfortunately, but that that was a great scene that still held, held up very well. However, the firing scene is the best scene in this movie and it is also my power ranking of the number 1 best scene where a character gets fired in any movie ever made. Wow. That's, that that scene is is magnificent. And is beautiful. your
0: number one firing scene of all time? That what you said?
2: It is my number one scene fired of all time. Yes, yes.
0: Off, I did a power rankings of, of this head. at one point. I did I did a top ten scenes where people get fired or quit their jobs. I have done that before. It,
1: wait, is, is this? Is, was this on your list,
0: Todd? No, that, that wasn't one of the ones I wrote down.
1: Off the top of my head, I have two that are better than this. One is American Beauty no that that's just such a better scene and no, and the not. second is well, charlie my, wilson's war America with Beauty philip seymour Falk hoffman over the
0: same scene. Th- those are both on my, yeah.
1: on my list my, my second is charlie wilson's war philip seymour hoffman throwing the chair through the window talking about how he just spent two okay years that is learning a funny finish
2: scene. Finnish, yeah okay can i tell you why that scene is a great scene though why it sticks out to me is because in this is the best part of this movie the most redeeming part of this movie for me in nine out of ten other movies, the scene where Ben would have gotten fired would have been a scene where you're a drunk, you're a disgrace to this business, get out of here. It would have been closer to the Philip Seymour Hoffman, John Slattery scene, okay? But I think it is realistic that this boss would have had compassion for Ben. And I love the compassion he has for Ben. I think that's totally realistic. And oh, he's
1: definitely and, a likable oh,
2: guy. Oh,
0: absolutely. You can tell I mean, that he, see, from he sees the Doesn't loss of it. Doesn't that feel like it's a tragic
2: scene? Yes. Yes, I could see that, absolutely.
0: I'm trying to look up my, right. my list. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, while you're looking it up, what what was your favorite scene, Todd?
0: Uh, so my favorite scene, and the, the scene that uh, I always picture in my head when I think of the movie, is the scene where Sarah and Ben are eating rice uh, after uh, after the incident at the Desert Song Motel, where he's like, Where she says, I think you need to go see a doctor. And he just looks at her, like, in that glazed-over eyes. He's like, Sarah, I'm not going to see doctor. And it's just like this, like... And he's like, maybe I should move back to a motel. It's like, that that scene is so heartbreaking. And I feel like it is one of the most impactful scenes I've ever seen. And it ends with him sticking his chopsticks in his drink and eating the ice. The ice cube. I mean, that is just the perfect cap to that scene because he never actually eats any food in the movie Th- that is the first time you actually see him choose something and it's ice and uh but that i mean it's the first time also that she admits to herself or admits to anybody really other than her shrink or whoever she's talking to that is never explained that uh that she actually does care about him and, and will not go through with her deal with him that she's not going to st- tell him to stop drinking it's uh that that scene is that that scene is forever ingrained in my head and the one that i always think of when i think of this movie
1: that's a That's great a, call. That a is a good call. call. No objection. Did you find your list yet, Todd?
0: No, I was talking. I wasn't I wasn't actually looking while I was doing
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't multitask? What's going on here? <laughs> Alright, well while he's looking that up, um Zach, do you have any uh, any flaws, anything outdated, conspiracy theories, anything like that?
2: Yes, unfortunately a lot of flaws came up in this movie. <sighs> Should I just i I'm just gonna say it out loud. This movie to me Goes down a little bit upon a rewatch. I think I move it to three stars. A high three stars. <sighs> I, I I really regret it. I, it. It's sad. The music really doesn't work in this movie. The excessive... Ooh. The excessive um, sort of indie stylistics, which is just a rationalization for defending the two biggest cliches that you could possibly have in a Hollywood movie, which is the drunk and the prostitute with the heart of gold... You know, uh, oversaturated with an, uh, 90s India's aesthetic to me just kind of came off flat. Drinking in a pool, that does not work from my experience, okay? <laughs> However, drinking from experience, two vodkas. He was holding it,
0: it shut. Like, I mean, he did it right.
2: <laughs> drinking two vodkas in a shower does work, though, I will say, um, in, in the movie's defense. Um, and it was vodka,
1: according to the trivia.
2: I didn't like how his ring suddenly appeared in the scene where he was getting fired, even though the earlier prostitute had taken it off him. But hey, according to IMDb Trivia, the movie is out of order in the first 15 minutes, so we can just defend whatever they do. The overhead shots, come on, let's get real, let's kind of move on from this. Um, why is he only buying fifths? If he is an alcoholic, why isn't he buying handles? Like, Ben, ben is an alcoholic, why is he buying so many he's, different kinds he's, of alcohol? He's
0: al- always drinking out of handles, like... When he's riding in
2: the car, he's drinking out of handles. But in the first scene, he's only buying fifths, and in the last part of the first scene, he's that's buying a Baileys. Bef- Why but is he buying a Baileys, Todd? That's Come on. before he decided he was going to kill himself. That was before he <laughs> lost his job. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, defend this. You know, you'd say this movie's an indie movie. It's shot out of chronological order, whatever. I don't. I don't buy that. I, it. It. It's disappointing to me. And then the last thing is. I hate well. I hate the Julian Sands character. We've kind of okay, already established that. I hate the invisible psychologist. I kept on expecting a, a a two shot of Lorraine Brodko from from The Sopranos as her therapist. It felt like a gimmick. It felt like screenwriting 101. And I have to say that some of the scenes in this movie with the slow mo felt like HBO's Taxi Cab confash, Confessions from the 1990s. There are scenes in this movie that work better than maybe any movie about alcoholism, but they get undermined by some of the scenes with Julian Sands and some of the stuff that just doesn't work in this movie, and it's unfortunate, and it didn't work for me this time. Maybe I'll come back to it later and and appreciate it, but I'm sorry. I don't know.
1: Yeah, my comment I had was, who is Sarah talking to? I mean, it never really establishes it. Is it a friend? Is it a psychologist? Who is a psychologist?
0: I think it's got to be some sort of therapist. I We'd mean, think so,
1: but well, but, but, but it never actually says about
0: the book. Like, it, it's way more like existential. Like, it, it's way more in their heads than it the than it is actual like narrative. It, it's it's so different. Right? But I mean, I assume it, I always assume it was like some sort of therapist because I I can't imagine who else she would be telling that to.
1: I think you can take out those scenes, and the movie is
2: better for it. One hundred percent agree.
0: I don't know, cause then you don't you don't get any of the the real inside of what Sarah's thinking, and then she's just some like stand in for whatever he wants her to be.
1: You could almost make it some narration or or something, but I, I don't think it actually adds to her character at all. I think but you hate narration I think you know too, plenty about her.
0: What? You hate narration too. You've said it. I do, I do. <laughs> so, but but
1: in, in like a limited in a limited way like that, like maybe Honestly, I don't think it adds that much to her except for the end. Like like end with a with a like narration or just leave the ending scene in and take out all the other scenes where she's talking. It doesn't add anything to the movie. I don't think it adds anything except for the ending scene. Leave the ending scene in of her talking to a therapist. The rest you can cut and I don't think anything is taken away. Because you still understand who she is from everything else that happens.
0: But you won't feel sympathy for her if you don't understand what she was, uh, what what her relationship was with Yuri. You would have to physically show oh, that, you get... which would be more like of Julian Sands on screen, which you don't like either.
1: You still get that in the flashback of when she hands him the knife.
0: That wasn't a flashback. Yeah. No, she was like, okay, go for it again. What? No,
1: no, no, no. It, no, it, when she was like in the kitchen, she hands him the knife, it was a flashback because he just like walks away and she, after she bent over.
0: That was not a flashback. <laughs> it's because she spent the whole night with Ben and she didn't make any money and he was pissed.
1: Mm hmm. Mm
0: hmm. Wow. I mean, you this is terrible. Okay, so I'm going to get into what I actually think uh, of, like, Mike gripes I guess. <laughs> um, we should cut out that last part that Zach said. Uh, uh, I agree. Okay, so, <laughs> early on, um, Ben passes out uh, after, you know, the, the one prostitute takes his ring, and his fridge is wide open, and he wakes up the next morning, and the fridge is not all frosted over. So, I mean, that's just, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's bad, like a physics or something like that there's something wrong with there. Like the 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 fridge would be all frosted over. He also empties his bottle of tequila into a glass at one point. Uh, when when he's packing up all of his stuff to move to Sarah's and then it, it fills it about a fourth of the way and then when he realizes he can't fit everything in, he grabs that glass and it was full and then he chugs it. Like there's just continuity editing there, I guess. Um
1: know that so that I felt like he had been like emptying every single bottle
0: but it didn't, into that, it, was an, it was an uncut. That was the dregs
1: of every bottle, and so he was drinking, like, some random cocktail of every type of alcohol he had just a little bit left of.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, I don't think there was a, a, a shot, uh, I think that was an uncut shot, It looked at least it looked like it, maybe, I don't know. No,
1: it, it, it looked like there was a cut in there.
0: Okay, well, and uh, the flask that she gives him doesn't have a thing that attaches the lid to the flask. Which would never work because, one, an alcoholic would lose that lid immediately, and two, like, like when he, he goes bottoms up with the flask just because, I mean, it looks cool, but, like, the, the lid is always going to hit you in the face. It's never going to look that cool. But there's no... I've never seen a flask that didn't have the lid actually attached by another piece of metal to the flask. He Not also, to mention, he
1: needs, like, a gallon flask.
0: Yes. that that, <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah, but he doesn't need to carry a fifth in his, in his pocket anymore, I guess. Uh, he also says he's going to buy forty-five pairs of underwear, one for each day, and just throw them out. But he only said he was going to be there for four weeks, which doesn't add up. Good call. Uh, I uh, let's see what else do I have. Um,
1: maybe he he counts weeks in a different way.
0: <laughs> Man, maybe. <laughs> yeah, his timing's got to be way off in the in the state that he's in. Uh, the motel
1: that would be Nevada.
0: Let's him drag the TV out to the pool so he could watch a movie. I think that's awesome. And I don't think that would ever be able to happen, but that that motel is really accommodating until that lady is a complete bitch. And I also want to have a Or flop. they are
1: not, and that's why the lady is a complete bitch. <laughs> well, <maybe. laughs>
2: she's a Biggest Douche Award nominee as well.
0: When they're at the casino, Cage However, also screams... However, she's also one of
1: my favorite minor characters.
0: Yeah. Cage screams snake eyes at one point in the casino. And... uh yeah, he starred in that movie. <laughs> Conspiracy like, theory. <laughs> um, one of the most underrated Nicolas Cage movies, honestly. And uh, I also want to point out a flaw with Zach. And the the soundtrack is flawless because I can't hear any of those songs ever. Like uh, my one and only the Sting song or "Lonely Teardrops." Like that song is forever in like ingrained in my head with like the scenes that it, it and come rain or come shine. Like that those songs are so perfect in in the the, the context of this movie and. They'll never leave my memory, and it's a it's a perfect soundtrack. Michael McDonald way better than he was in *Fourteen Virgin*.
2: <laughs> we'll have to ask Paul Rudd what he thinks.
1: Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, LVP MVP. Uh, let's see here. I couldn't come up with an LVP. I'll go first, but I have my MVP is Mike Figgis, which is going against everything Zach has just been talking about. Not only because he directed it, he wrote the adaptation, um, the adapted screenplay, and he wrote the, the score. I'm totally on Todd's side with the score. I love the score. I think it's awesome. Um, he's my MVP. Uh, my LVP, there's a lot. Oh, no, I, my LVP is the, uh, the uh, biker boyfriend girlfriend because they just suck.
2: That's my yep. LVP. That's a good call. All right, Zach. LVP, MVP. My LVP is the TV series Rugrats on Nickelodeon because apparently John O'Brien, the author of the book Leaving Las Vegas, yeah, he wrote a script for Rugrats and it was like, it it, it was um, shown, but apparently the process, according to Wikipedia, the process of it was very traumatic and he was disgusted with the editorial changes made to the script. That, I think, preempted everything that occurs in Leaving Las Vegas, which I think we can, it's fair to say, is semi-autobiographical for John O'Brien, which is absolutely tragic. So, screw Rugrats. My my, uh, MVP for this movie is Roger Ebert. He named this movie the number one movie of 1995, and he had a lot of great things to say about it. This is a classic movie that Ebert loved because Ebert was an alcoholic, like Jack Lemmon revealed on the Actors Studio. And I think he could see a lot of resonance in the Nicolas Cage character, and I give him props for that. I think it's an important movie, and I'm ashamed to say it wasn't a great experience rewatching it, but I think it is an important movie, and it's definitely better than Braveheart.
1: But not better than Apollo thirteen.
2: No. <laughs> or Mr. way better Holland's than Pete office. Conrad.
1: Way better than Pete Conrad. All right, Todd, what do you got?
0: Uh, my LVP is the motorcycle cop who watches Nick Cage swig a half gallon of vodka Ooh, and yes. does not pull him over. White privilege. He just eyes him, and he's just like, okay, and he drives past him, like, just not. I mean, not not what you want to see. And, uh, my MVP is also Mike Figgis, because he, like, he never touched anything that was this great before or after, and, uh, the screenplay is tight, and it's inventive, like, of something that is so different in its source material, he created something that was so different and beautiful, and he pulled out the, arguably the greatest male and female lead performances of the 90s, and it's in a, it's, um... It's this incredible style and vibe, and um, it it I and mean, it's not fully depressing like it probably should be because it's so alive and, and just and beautiful and it's a, it's an amazing movie and it's clearly his his baby because he did the score too like Terry said it's a it's something else, and he acted in it too which I mean multiple times is, yeah.
1: So you're saying the screenplay was a lot more congealed? Yeah. Or were you saying the Neither. screenplay was,
0: oh, tight, tight, tight? <laughs> Red, yellow, pink, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you said you said the word tight, and I couldn't say... When you say something is tight, uh, that's all I... Tight, tight! That's all I think of.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Quote of the daytime, Let's wrap this up. Zach, what he got?
2: I really want to quote uh, Nicholas K- Ben Sanderson's quote when he's got the the mobile recorder device. Like he's like Lloyd Dobler and say anything, and he talks about the bank teller who's like a low rent version of Courtney Thorn Smith. But I'm not going to say that quote because it's a little inappropriate for this PG-13 podcast. I decided to go with Ben's song. You turn me on. You turn me on. You're not too long. You're not too short. You're not too round. You're like a cat. The cat in the hat. Look at those eyes. Honest to God. You're luminescent, baby. I have a house at the beach. And I'm great in bed. That's actually not the (laughs) line, but I paraphrase a little bit
0: was that not so that he actually make that up like i couldn't tell
1: (laughs) he had to have i mean he had to have all right i'm gonna go next uh i've got three quotes actually i couldn't just settle for one so my uh one of them is a direct quote from nicholas cage who says uh there's a fine line between the method actor and the schizophrenic and i Mm. think nicholas cage embodies that fully um and then um i have a quote from uh, a league of their own which I think uh, fully fully encapsulates Nicolas Cage in this movie, and just Nicolas Cage in general. And it's uh, it's after um, um, Ira Lowenstein looks at looks at him and says, "I didn't know if you were uh, uh, dead or drunk until you scratched yourself for 15 minutes." And he said, "Well, anything worth doing is worth doing right." And I think that's that's Nicolas Cage right there. Anything worth doing is doing right. Um, and then. Um, my last quote is from Inside the Actors Studio, uh, when John Travolta was on and he was talking about face-off <laughs> and doing face-off with Nicolas Cage. And he did his Nicolas Cage impression because they were like bonding over over being on, on face-off together and having to play each other. And he they were like bonding, it's like, Oh, we have all these things in common, and then and then he said, and then Nicholas and then Nick said, John, have you ever had the urge to buy a fine piece of glass. And and John, go, and John Travolta goes, Nope, Nick, can't say that I have. <laughs> so, that was, right, there that you go. Those, those are, yeah, it, it's a great moment on Inside the Actor's Studio, for sure. R.I.P. James Lipton. All right, Todd, what do you got?
0: Uh, I have two. One of them is when um, they're at the mall, and they get a drink, and... Uh, like, uh, he starts coughing, and he's like, Nurse! To call the waitress. And yes. Like, that's, a good, that's a good... Like, like, I need to good remember part. that one. Like, that is... <laughs> that's <is> awesome.
1: <laughs> that was almost one of my questions of, what did he refer the waitress as?
0: <laughs> yeah, and then my other one is also from inside the actor Studios, Nicholas Cage's thing, where, when uh, James Lipton asks him about when he flips over the table, and he screams, like, you know, I am this boy's child, and he says... Uh, yeah, that was sort of a primal scream that came out of me that wasn't in the script. And I'm, think, I'm thinking like, yeah, that, I think that describes most Nicolas Cage movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> primal screams that are not in the script. <laughs> that is perfect. And with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review. We're uh, all over the internet on a bunch of different platforms. Check us out. Uh, and tune in next week. Until then, have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side.
0: Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.